What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Just Friends. As always, I'm your host, Mitchell Embry, and I could not be more excited about our guest this week. This is the last and final episode that I recorded before the beginning of social distancing. I honestly couldn't be happier about it. It turned out amazing. Our guest this week is Mr. Andrew Morris. I met him working at Dawes High School, but as you'll find out in the podcast, we had mutual friends and we felt familiar to each other. Maybe that's just how his personality is. Maybe everybody feels that way with him. I don't know, but what I do know is that this podcast turned out wonderful. Get your masks out, ladies and gentlemen, because we go deep on this one. Get out your flippers. We talked about teaching. We talked about life. We told funny stories. It was it was awesome. Maybe it's because I haven't really hung out with any friends actually in person in such a long time, but I just really appreciated our conversation. I had a blast listening to it over the past week as I've been editing. And I I hope you guys enjoy listening to it as well. So, you know, this was recorded on March 14th. So we talk a little bit about our first impressions of the coronavirus and social distancing and stuff like that. Don't take anything we say in this podcast too literally. We're both morons. So let's preface the whole thing with that. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you guys our friend, the fabled Mr. Andrew Morris. This makes it feel real, bro. Oh, you're live. It's fucking... It is real. Oh, it's real. It's so real. So you, sir, you have a three-week vacation impromptu. How's that feel? Uh, strange. Yeah, but it does. Unprecedented. Yeah. And we were talking about that, like, uh, this whole coronavirus thing is, is unlike anything that's happened since probably the early 1900s. Yeah. Well, the last thing was probably SARS. Well, SARS wasn't nearly on this level. When you no. think about, I know you're not a sports baller. No, I'm not. <laughs> but for me, it's gonna be real weird to have this three weeks off in March and not be able to sit home and enjoy some basketball. I know that is everybody is really uh, up in arms about that. It's a really interesting decision. How do you feel about it? Uh, I mean, it, so if you listen to the uh, the Michael Osterholm podcast, I listen to it. Yeah, uh, I was. A little, everybody stopped freaking out. Yeah. I was a little bit that way. Because <laughs> yeah. I do, I, mean, I am well aware that the uh, the media does, you know, propagate certain things for their, you know, profit margins. It's okay. I get it. Um, but when he started rolling off numbers, and I, I believe, okay, these numbers might not be perfectly accurate, but he said somewhere in the realm of like 96 million people will be infected. Mm-hmm. 34 million people will be hospitalized. 480,000 people will die. Yeah. And I just was like, oh, shit. I was like, this could be problematic. I yeah. was like, we need to get it together. And he wasn't even saying, like, that that could happen and we could take measures. Like, really, the only measures that we can do is just spread that slow advanced out over time. And the same number of people are probably going to get infected, maybe a little bit fewer. Yeah. But because th- we don't have really an answer for this thing, it's just going to spread through our population. It's going to be crazy. Right, and you know, he was saying our main course of action is to do what we're doing. He's like, realistically, with it being airborne and staying in the air for upwards of three hours after a person is in that space, your best course of action is to not be in large groups of people uh, and avoid, uh, you know, really leaving the house with, with you know, with the exception of necessity, you know. So it's like, 
actually I saw a YouTube video that, that kind of backed up that same exact thing, and it was a math equation. And I don't remember all of the variables really, but there were three variables, and there was an exponential equation where the exponent was time. So as time goes by, uh, this constant out front causes the whole function to increase at a certain rate. And he was talking about how like the growth of a viral infection like this starts off as exponential, but then because there's not an infinite amount of people to infect in the U.S., it slowly t- like tapers off into like a logarithmic decay. And he said one of the variables that determines that function that we have control over is how many people come into contact with people who are infected. The more people that come in contact with other people who are infected, the faster the function increases. And so he said that if we could, this specific YouTube video says that if you could uh, limit the amount of exposure that people have to each other, there's a really interesting thing. So it, it does seem like a bummer. Actually, it probably seems pretty cool to you because uh, you get three weeks off, but it makes a lot of sense to me to take all these precautions. Uh, yeah, and uh, I've been sharing, I've literally just have that copied into my... Uh, <laughs> clipboard there on my phone <laughs> and I've been sharing it to people on Facebook you know they're just talking mad shit and I'm like hey man maybe educate yourself listen to one of the experts this guy isn't just some Joe Blow uh, it's literally his job to investigate these things uh, it's been his job for years he works for the CDC uh, I believe he even said he had done work for the World Health, World Health Organization so it's like that uh, that's one of my biggest pet peeves with a lot of people today is the disrespect associated with people that are supposed to be experts in their field mm-hmm. and they claim that they know more than them right and, and that's really upsetting not to get like too down the political rabbit hole and lose half your listeners yeah. <laughs> but it's just one of those things that just bothers me uh and i love that we're just going knee deep into the serious <laughs> Of this immediately. Well, I just can't help it. This that's what's happening right now. It is. And that's what the whole narrative on any social media site is. Yeah. Everybody's thinking about coronavirus and I'm thinking about it. It's part of the reason why I feel like I mean, we we actually made plans to do this before all of the decisions were made about mm-hmm. JCPS. Yeah. Which is cool. But it has opened up opportunities for me to talk to other teachers over the next three weeks because everybody's gonna be slow. Yeah. Um things are just going to slow down because nobody's going to be out doing anything. And a lot of my teacher friends are off until it's the 10th. Uh, April 6th was supposed to be the date. It's going to be this. We'll have the two weeks before spring break and yeah. the actual spring break. And then we're supposed to come back. That's cool. Uh, and I think they're going to revisit the decision just to make sure that that is still the proper course of action, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is good. I appreciate, yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, because I, I, I'll be honest, that right now my health is, mm, I'm going to have to have a major surgery uh, again that I had two years ago. Um, so I was concerned, really concerned, because my immune system is definitely compromised. Yeah. So if I was fully healthy, I wouldn't be as concerned. Right. Uh, but I'm not a jerk. So I do understand the effect that this can have on older people, yeah. you know, because I have this little weird thing called empathy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's where I was at with it. You, speaking of uh, teachers, your neighbor, you should have Veda on here. Oh, dude, I would love to have Veda on here. I saw her the years. other day. Yeah. yeah, She said she saw you walking your dog. Yeah, <laughs> I would have stopped to talk to her, but I had been running, and she caught me walking because I was about to throw up. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not going to go talk to her right now. Oh, man. Yeah, I've been trying to work on my fitness, but I got in such a hole, just like emotionally, 
that I let it go for probably like four months where I wasn't working out, I wasn't running, I wasn't eating healthy. I'm up to probably like 245 now, which is the most I've weighed in like, gosh, probably five years when I got down to my all-time low, which was like 220. Because I used to be real fat. Mm. Like in high school and early college, I was real fat. So I was trying to, you know, pound those out and it didn't go well. (laughs) Didn't drink enough water. It's... Yeah, that's the one thing that people can do that people don't do. Like uh, one of the Montgomery, the, the choir teacher, mm-hmm. she was talking about that. She's like, I get headaches because I don't drink enough water. And I go, well, fuck. Like, <laughs> it's literally the easiest remedy to something ever. You yeah. just fill a glass up and then when you're done, you fill back up. Like if you see, I brought my own cup of yeah. water. Like I don't, that's one thing that I, I try to do because it's easy. Yeah. Uh, and if it's like, if I could do one healthy thing as... I, you know, I use that water to chase the two fried chicken biscuits that I ate <laughs> on the way here. But, you know, it's all about balance. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. It is. But, um, yeah, man, it's it's uh, it's going to be an interesting three weeks. Yes, it is. I'm going to try and use it to my advantage, uh, try and get on the health train, because when I do eat healthy, it, it hurts my issue. I won't go too far into it, but uh, it helps me feel a little bit better Yeah, not be as miserable. I had pizza for dinner last night. <laughs> Not a good choice. Yeah. Not a good choice. So. Well, it depends on why you're making it. Are you making it to have a delicious, delicious meal? Because then it's a great choice. It was, it was delicious. Good. You're not wrong. It's you get like, that heartburn? No. That's the crazy part about Man. it. Like I used to have really, really bad uh, indigestion and heartburn uh, and acid reflux and uh, though all those things combined. Uh, allegedly, they said that I still get that. I still have reflux, but I don't feel it. Wow. So after they did the surgery, it like completely rewired my stomach. Huh. So I'm eating the bad foods, and the doctor had said that was probably probably part of the problem yeah. of, of why it might have reoccurred is because I could eat what I wanted, and it didn't hit me in the same way. Yeah. So I didn't have as much conscious effort to say I shouldn't eat that because mm-hmm. I'm going to feel like shit later. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't. And uh, just in here too lately... Uh, has it really affected me in that way? So mm. yeah, man, I get the heartburns. It's no fun. All my friends do too. We were at a super. Well, I shouldn't say it. We were at a uh, <laughs> big football party, and I recorded it with like a big mic in the middle of the room. And uh, if I had to count, I couldn't count on one hands how many times somebody went. I have a heartburn because we were eating like fucking like meatballs and shit and nachos, drinking alcohol. It probably smelled terrible in there. Oh, yeah. It was farty, sweaty. There was only one woman, my friend Ben's wife, and she got out of that room pretty early. (laughs) Hey, Ben, I don't know your wife, but this sounds like the start to a bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Get her out. It's not safe here. I have to point out one thing. I love the fact that um, the the mascot, the emblem for your podcast is a beer. Mm -hmm. And here we are doing this at, oh... 10 45 a.m and this is one of the only <laughs> podcasts that we haven't drank too i've only done it i've done two so far that we haven't drank and today is because i mean there's some smirnoff, smirnoff. Two, two mike hards and mike sards and two uh claws white claws if you want to grab a white claw we can oh pop god. one open oh my god that or is we the, don't have that to. is the whitest shit i've ever seen yeah. in my life well that's just what ended up happening yeah <laughs> but uh, most of the time we do drink. Yeah, I'm not. 
I like bourbon. That's my go-to. So even if it were beer, if you had a big frothy beer, they look so lovely. Yeah. I want to like beer. Yeah. Just just the whole aesthetic of the whole thing, the presentation, and they'll talk about all the things. Like Joe Rogan has a, a sponsor from Blue Moon, and the way he talks about it, it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. With hints of orange peel. Harvested from hops in the most beautiful mountain range. And I'm like, great, that sounds fucking great, man. But it's it all ends up tasting awful. Yeah, what like, that means is it's gonna taste like you chewed on a flower. <laughs> That's what I feel like like those pale ales that are like are extra hoppy. I don't believe anybody really likes an IPA. Oh, I think I don't know. Maybe some people do. No. I don't enjoy it though. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. They're just like, I'm gonna out hipster you. And IPA is amazing. <laughs> I read that the the way that IPAs were even invented was they were trying to ship beer. India. Yeah, so they added extra hops so it would stay good. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't buy it. A happy accident? Is that how you look at it? Uh, no. That's how uh, old Bob Ross would describe it, I think. <laughs> yeah. Look at this happy tree over here. <laughs> I hated that guy. You really? I love no, him. No, I didn't. Yeah, okay. Who hated Bob Ross? Not me. I have socks with his face on them. I bet you do. I do. I love I want him. underwear with his face right in the crotchal. Mm. That would be... Where his fro is like your pubes. Yeah. Oh my God. How perfect would that be? <laughs> That'd be beautiful. Like this is a, a fun joke. <laughs> Either last Halloween or the Halloween before that, I carved Bob Ross's face silhouetted into a pumpkin as a jack-o'-lantern. And it turned out pretty good. It was surprisingly well executed. Not nearly as cool as the pumpkin that you brought in for the Halloween competition, though, because that thing was tight. Shout out to Ryan Nall. That's mm. my boy. He does uh, pumpkins at the... Uh, the uh, air koi thing that they do every year, the, uh, what do they call it? The uh, jack-o'-lantern spectacular, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I pulled in a ringer. <laughs> <laughs> That's But okay. I did help. Yeah. Like, everybody was like, you didn't even do it. I was like, the fuck I didn't. I was like, he pointed at stuff. He said, carve this, and I did it. Who cares if you did it yourself? You brought in a cool-ass pumpkin for everybody to see, and that's cool. And I still didn't win. Oh, uh, well. You remember that? Yeah, well. I got hosed. The bubblegum one was neat. Someone took a pumpkin... For those of you that weren't there, <laughs> they took it and decorated it with uh, gumballs, individually um, glued on gumballs, got an actual gumball stand, set the pumpkin on top of there so it looked like a legit uh, gumball machine. It was it was cool. That's a lot of effort, too. I, it was. I wasn't even mad. I was like, damn it. I was like, my pumpkin was the shit. And then I see this, and I'm like, this is, somebody brought it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't even do that this last year. So let's dive into you. Because we've already touched on it. The preamble's over. We know, I kn- we met each other when we both started working at a high school in Jefferson County. Mm-hmm. And I used to work at that high school. I do indeed. A lot of still really cool friends there, really cool people. But we actually have a, a, a mutual friend group and we didn't know each other. So where did you go to high school exactly? I went to Butler. You went to Butler? Yeah, That's cool. I what know. year did you graduate? A lot of your listeners are like, click, change the channel, all <laughs> nah. those PRP peeps. Uh, I graduated in 01. Okay. Uh, I went to went to middle school at Iroquois, uh, made the um, the leap by myself. I think I only knew one person from Iroquois Middle that was making the jump to Butler. So, Dang. Uh, yeah, I'd heard some of the people on your previous podcast, you know, they were talking about, you know, their choices of high school being based upon their friends group of middle school. Mm-hmm. Well, I was a complete opposite. I was always kind of just a few years ahead because of the oldest in my family. So I was like, I was a little bit ahead of the maturity curve. And I was like, no, 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 no. I think Butler's going to be the traditional program. It's going to keep me in line. Um, 
it's going to give me the the structure that I want. And, uh, I felt like I was going to be around the right people to succeed. And, uh, I was already thinking about that in eighth what grade. What a mature fucking decision. I, it was fucking wild. Like I did it. Like yeah. I had to fill out what was crazy at that point. I had to fill out letters of recommendation. I had to get those from my teachers. Uh, I had to send them and get all my, um, my grades together. So I had to send them my full, uh, record. I cannot think of that word right now. Transcript? Transcript. There you go. Thank you. I had to send them my full transcript, and I did all that. My parents didn't do it. They were like, wherever you want to go is fine. I would not have been able to do that in eighth grade, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. At least I wasn't motivated to even try. That's for sure. Yeah. That's cool. So you were at Butler. I wonder if you know, my friend Chad, his older brother graduated from Butler, too. His name was Brad Heiner. Mm-mm. No. Oh, well. I wasn't a cool kid. That's okay. He wasn't either. <laughs> he might have been, actually. I think he played baseball for a year or two. He's uh, he's pretty nerdy now. He does Warhammer, mm. and he like takes his... I mean, I call paints. him nerdy, but I actually think it's fucking cool as shit. Yeah. He paints these little metal dudes, mm-hmm. and like, oh, dude, he does a great job, too. Yeah, my boy Vince does that, my old bass player. He's uh, he actually he won some sort of award. That's awesome. Shout out to Vince. Yeah. So... Like Brad was posting some pictures on his like social media accounts of these like little figurines that he had like decorated. Mm-hmm. It sounds the way that the the way I'm describing it sounds so stupid, but it's actually cool as shit. It sounds like he's never seen a vagina. <laughs> That's how it sounds. Well, no, he's married. He's got a wife. <laughs> so you're uh, you merely solidify my point. He hasn't seen a vagina at least a month. At least so, a month. Yeah, probably two there's, months. There's probably a schedule. It's usually on the calendar. Like right next to the coupons, they're mm-hmm. like have sex with husband for Thursday of Get the month. Get disappointed by husband <laughs> again. <laughs> it's long dot 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 for drama. So would you say you had a normal high school experience, like or? Um, you said I mean, you weren't popular. Is uh, well, what does that mean? It was. I was kidding. I mean, yeah. it, and I wasn't like in the like cool crowd, but I was very much like I am now. Yeah. Like I keep a wide range of friends because yeah. I have a wide range of interests. I'm an odd, odd duck. Um, so in high school, I was in choir. I was in choir all four mm-hmm. years. That's cool. Uh, one of my favorite people on the planet. We're still friends. We go to shows and things all the time. 20 years after I'm out of high school, Mr. Bolden, uh, Michael, as he, he always tells me to call him, because I still call him Mr. Bolden. He's like, <laughs> said, call me Michael. We're friends now. It's okay. Um, <laughs> nope. Bolden. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> um, but I was in choir all four years i was a theater geek uh so i was in three of the productions there west side story greece uh, another little 70s music review that i did uh fmla um i was in nhs beta club uh i did a lot man you were like an overachiever bro yeah yeah i mean i I, I tried it kind of really fell flat the first year i went to college yeah because i was 18 and my parents were both broke i grew up really poor uh, we grew up between uh, Arcade Apartments and Algonquin Parkway, uh, right five houses down from the uh, the strip club capital of the city, Seventh <laughs> Street. Uh, we were five doors down from Bare Necessities, and uh, <laughs> so it wasn't the best of neighborhoods. And so once I got old enough to work, I had to work a little bit more so that I could kind of take care of myself because my mom and dad were like throwing their hands up <laughs> they're like all right buddy we got to take care of these other three shits that we popped out after you and i'm like all right man so i, I ended up working a lot more than i really wanted to uh it made it really hard to be successful in college i was a supervisor at ups um so i ended up dropping out of L because that first semester uh was 9 11 
And uh, on 9-11, I was at a funeral for my grandfather. Um, he was supposed to get a, uh, the presentation of the flag. He had a Purple Heart. Uh, he fought in Korea and was supposed to get that presentation. That didn't happen, obviously. The state was, you know, under, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the nation was under a state of emergency. Um, so I will never forget that day, obviously. Yeah. Most people know exactly where, and I'm like, well, I definitely know exactly where I was. Uh, I remember watching a lot of the coverage in the Shoney's after we, we went to his funeral because it was one of his favorite places to go because he was old. So it was just standard. <laughs> um, so we did that. Uh, and in that same semester, I had hernia surgery, which was crazy. Uh, I was at a uh, Godsmack concert in Evansville. And, uh, I mean, they fucking killed, man. They were so good. <laughs> That's right. And uh, I had this sharp pain. I was coming back from Evansville, and I was having this sharp pain. And I was like, what is happening? And then I got home, and I crumbled on the bathroom floor. And my mom, you know, freaks out because I'm still living at home. I'm 19. Um, so I had that hernia surgery, and my grandfather died same semester. And, uh, yeah, dude, so I was pretty well screwed. You know, so I ended up withdrawing from all my classes and then just didn't really go back until I was 30, which is uh, right after my dad died. So some death in my college career. But what happened when my dad died was uh, two weeks after he died, I enrolled at IUS uh, because I just started doing a lot of self-reflecting and really thinking about, you know, the the finite level of life. You know, I was like, <clears throat> I was like, what am I going to do? You know, because I was working at a job, I was working a factory job. Uh, I was making whiskey barrels. Uh, I did that for 10 years. And interesting in itself, but not to me. It was just a job. You know, I went in there every day. It was monotonous. I was putting 10, 15,000 pieces of wood on a conveyor belt every day, completely mindless. The only thing that saved me was, oddly enough, podcasts. I was listening to podcasts every day to keep me sane. Um, but I said to myself, what am I going to do? I'm miserable. Uh, what would my dad want me to do? What would he want me to do to be proud? And uh, I said to myself, education. My wife had already been an educator for, I think, four years at the time. Uh, so she kind of inspired me as well. And I just thought that, that would be the trajectory for something that I could do that would be meaningful to me. Man, that's a cool story. Because I relate to you a lot yeah. in that in that tale that you just told. For me, I feel like I kind of... My high school, I would have looked up to you. I wish I would have done choir. I wish I would have done theater. But I was too insecure to put myself out there in that way. You um, have the perfect personality for it. <laughs> You're very theatrical anyway. I know. I'm yeah. so dramatic. I am yeah. dramatic. Uh, so I think I would enjoy that, and I think I would also be pretty good at it. Um, but I didn't have the guts. And then also struggled in high school or struggled in college but not because of adversity which is definitely your story um although i did have some of my own but really i struggled in college because i didn't have the discipline to really be even successful super successful in high school so i didn't definitely didn't have the success or the discipline to be successful in college when i first started and it's weird to hear you tell that story because that is the story i've heard over and over and over again sitting here if i feel like everybody thinks that when when people split off at that point right before college that all of their classmates go off and just nail it 
<laughs> from that point on, they're just every every decision they make is just really killing it for them. Well, it seems to be the narrative that we see over and over again. It's one of those things that you know you see in movies and you you read about it. You know, I just went on and I just crushed it and I succeeded. I think one of the things that might have been for me was fatigue. You know, because I'd started so early. Like, I mean, legit. Like in third grade, I'm getting my brother up, getting him dressed. And getting him on the bus. We went to the same elementary school. We're only 18 months apart. So we were really close. And it, it was okay because, I mean, he was my best friend at that point, realistically. Yeah. You know, so it was getting him up, getting him, taking care of him, any issue with him. I was really helping. I had to step up, you know, because my mom and dad, again, both had to work to take care of us. And uh, so it started so early that I think I might have had, like, some onset fatigue once I had a little bit of freedom. I was like, fuck, yeah. you know, so I kind of use that as like a jumping off point, you know, with that. And also, like you said, the trauma that happened. I mean, it sucked. That was a rough semester, but it was one of the best things I ever did because I was able to make the next jump into a thing that I'd always dreamed of doing. And that was being in a band. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I got to be in a heavy metal band for seven years and I got to go up there and I played with some of my favorite bands, people that I absolutely adored and admired, and we shared the same stage. Uh, would I have done that if I was still in college? I don't know. Um, I don't know that I would have had the time. Yeah. Because it was really, really time-consuming. To be in a good band, you should, be, you should be practicing at least three times a week. Oh, for sure. I mean, realistically. For sure. You know, for multiple hours at a time. And that's, that's what we were doing initially. When I was in um, probably the most notable band... Not the most recent. I was in a band called Barry But Breathing uh, with Corey Young, which is getting into bringing a full circle of how to me, me and you kind of know each other. Yeah. We were kind of always on the outskirts. I would see you at shows and things like that. And like you're kind of always on the periphery there for me. So when we worked at DOS, I knew you by face. You know, I just didn't know you like personally. Yeah. You know, and I think I th- we might have said that to each other. I was like, I know you. Yeah, I'd How do I seen know you? you on my Facebook page a bunch before I ever even yeah. saw you, and like, uh, yeah, I, w- I just didn't hang around. That I knew that group because I'd worked with both Corey and Mike and Tyler Willman for a little while. I don't know if you know him. Um, I worked with those guys at Starbucks, and so I just sort of hung out with them every once in a while. And I would like I would go see shows, but not very often. Um, so the periphery is a perfect way to describe it. But but I, it was awesome when I saw you there because I was like coming into a brand new place and I was like, okay, this person is, if nothing else, familiar. Mm-hmm. So like I immediately felt like I w- would reach out to you and talk to you. And also you were just a really nice, big personality, which <laughs> I can appreciate. Yeah. So it was cool. Um, so would you so you teach humanities now right Mm -hmm. and that makes perfect sense (laughs) you were a theater nerd and what stopped you from pursuing that did you pursue that uh during that same time you were pursuing music it's it's interesting um i took a real long hiatus from theater um and you know like musical theater and things of that nature that i was really really into and really interested in i took a big long hiatus uh actually the hiatus until last year uh, where last year I ended up finally, uh, I had taken a theater course at IUS on a whim. Like I needed an elective course to kind of fill in and then literally rekindled like a, a fucking child. Like I glowed every day I was in that class. I was like, dude, why? Why did I leave? Because I realized how much I loved it. Fell in love with Rebecca Meixner, who was my um, 
theater appreciation teacher. Um, she was like, you should get involved. She's like, you would only need maybe like 15 more credits and you could get a theater minor. And so I did just that. Uh, and then I ended up finding Ashley Wallace, um, who was my acting teacher. And I ended up being in several of her classes and absolutely fell in love with her. She's just phenomenal. Uh, even helped to rekindle that fire. She kept like, she would send me little notifications of auditions at school. Like, hey, this is coming up. I think you should try, you know, cause she, you know, we had a really good time in her acting class. And finally I went out and did it. And the first one I did not get, oh, I went out man. I went and tried out for Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> oh, that would have been such a cool one too. It would have been fun. Uh, but I realized that I liked that show. I did not love that show. Oh. And when I showed up to auditions, it really showed. Mm -hmm. The people that loved that show really knew their shit. Yeah. And me, I was just kind of like an outsider at that point. One of the, the leading guy who played Frankenfurter was unbelievable. Like, I was floored. At the audition, he's doing the dancing across the stage and knows every movement. Well, come to find out, he'd already played him twice. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm a tourist. <laughs> I'm really a tourist here. Um, but I didn't let that discourage me, and she didn't either. She kept poking and prodding me. She's like, hey, I know that didn't work out for that show. And then she sent me out the other thing, and she's like, come on out to try out for this one. I was like, okay. So I went out to the next one, and it was Shakespeare. I got it. Nice. So that kind of... That kind of rekindled that spirit. And then in last year, I did As You Like It at IUS. I did The Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm. uh, the musical at Oldham County um, Community Theater uh, Arts Center. And then I did Peter and the Starcatcher at Theater Works, um, which is an award-winning show. It won Best Local Play, won Best Director, Best Leading Actor, Best Leading Actress. Needless to say, it was the best experience I've ever had in my life. Man, that's amazing. It was really cool. So it is interesting that you asked me that because I, I don't know why I stepped away from it. Um, I was really, really deep in metal. Like for about 10 years, I didn't listen to anything but metal. Uh, I became that like that dude bro at a show who's in the pit. Oh, you listen to John Mary's gay. <laughs> you know, I was like a douchebag. I was like, I, I kind of was that for several years. And then, you know, now that I'm an adult, I'd come back to <laughs> like a more eclectic taste. that's more realistically me. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, I think that's a lot of the reason I wanted to focus on that. I really had a lot of hope that it would be bigger than what it was. I mean, I had dreams and aspirations to tour and do all the things because obviously I'm driven. <laughs> it's always kind of been one of my things. Um, but you got to depend on other people. So bands can be tough and I'm not shitting on anybody. I love all my band members. I really do. I made some really tight bonds. I'm still really close to my buddy Eric, who is my guitar player in the White Lotus. I'm still really close to my boy Chase. Uh, I'm still pretty close to my boy Vince, uh, Vinny Castellano. He's in a new band, Belushi Speedball. Shout out to him. That's, that's a great name. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he's quite a character. He's doing great. They're probably one of the most popular bands in Louisville. I couldn't be more proud of him. I look at him as like a younger brother. And uh, he's a teacher, too, oddly enough. Nice. He's out in uh, Bullet East, I think. I always get it mixed up. But yeah, that's kind of my trajectory and my path to that. Come and bring it back around. You said I teach humanities. Well, that's a happy accident too. Yeah. So it's it's weird how things kind of uh, just find themselves into a place to where I think they should be. Um, I was I got my degree in English at IUS, so I have an English degree. So I, I started at DOS teaching English, and I was teaching one humanities class. So. I, 
I'll be honest about it. I was phoning it in. I didn't really care as much. Uh, English has a lot of oversight. There's a lot of people kind of breathing down your neck yes. in the educational field. I taught um, math, so I can really agree, appreciate that. You yeah. certainly do. Um, so the powers that be were always, not, I won't say necessarily on my back, but necessary, I had a vested interest in that subject. So it was kind of stressful. But midway through the semester, uh, we had a bunch of changes at DOS, as you remember last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, I believe, 11, 11 uh, faculty members leave for different positions. So there was a lot of change. Yeah. And our principal pulled me in, and he's like, hey, man, um, we have an opening for all the humanities classes. So if next semester you would like to teach all humanities, you could do that. And I go, well, initially I, I had my reservations because I was like, I have a degree in English. You know, I should at least be using that. Mm-hmm. But then I started thinking about it. As you said, like it makes perfect sense that I would teach the arts because it's not it's not a passing thing for me. It never has been. Uh, music is literally something that's been ingrained in me since I was a kid. You know, I was in a house filled with music always. And... I also appreciate the visual arts. You know, the wife and I are avid lovers of all of it. So after some some deep thought and and a little bit of discussion with the wife, discussion with some of the other teachers there, I made the jump. Couldn't have been a better idea. Yeah, that's really cool. So it seems like that type of subject would just be fun to teach. It is. So did you did you 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 took theater classes at IUS, but your degree is actually in English? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a theater minor. And so you started back there when you were 30. Yeah. What was it like going back to college as, like, a person who's rooted in adulthood at that point? Not, because, like, I was in college until I was, like, 26, 27, and then I mostly did it online. Mm -hmm. And when I was going to class, I was probably, like, 24, 25. So I was older, but I definitely wasn't, like, full-on responsibilities adult and you were so i imagine that was an interesting experience it was um in most ways it made it easier i bet it did so much easier yeah yeah and it also i had a certain amount of uh, disdain for so many of the younger kids because they're like hey bro i don't know how i'm gonna make time for this four page paper i gotta work three hours more at starbucks <laughs> and i'm like fuck you <laughs> eat shit I hate you because I was working 60 hours a week at yeah. the Cooperage I, you know because I've still I still kept my job at Brown Foreman because I would like you said I was a full grained adult yeah so I had full grained adult responsibilities exactly <clears throat> so I couldn't just uproot and be like alright buddy uh, quarter life crisis I'm gonna go back to college we're gonna see what happens uh, I couldn't do that so that made it hard I was tired all the time. I mean, he was averaging like four to five hours of sleep a night if I was lucky. A um, lot of crankiness with the wife. She's very understanding, a wonderful human. Uh, so I would apologize to her about once a week. I would have an explosion. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> just for no apparent reason. And then I would just be like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is not your fault. And she'd go, yes, sweetheart. Because she's just amazing. I'm glad you realized that finally. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you know I'm a catch. Uh, <laughs> you're right. I'm above my pay grade. Um but with that, the, it, I understood responsibility, and I understand. I understood how to divide things um, appropriately. I would still wait to the last minute way more than I should have, but I kept getting them A papers, boy. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> like, I work good in the crunch. Yeah. This is my method. Don't fuck with it. <laughs> uh, but 
it helped me in a lot of ways, you know, and it gave me perspective, you know, and it, it made me feel like a leader in a lot of my classes because a lot of the kids will look up to you, you know, because you were older or older and they thought you had it more together and be like, well, bitch, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> but I just got more practice of yeah, not having it together. I make fucking it up, look more smooth than <laughs> you do. That's all it is. Um, but with that being said, I, you know, I, I was able to work 60 hours a week, maintain 3.8 GPA. So I excelled nice. again. I fell right back into what I was good at. Mm-hmm. And damn it, it felt so good. Even like I loved going into the basement of the library because it was quiet. But I loved, I could have went other places that were maybe more serene. But this is going to maybe sound silly. I liked the smell of the books. I love the smell of books. Yeah, it it felt like learning. Mm. It might sound so cheesy, but it did. It's it's a weird smell of like old paper. It's almost a little bit sweet. I don't know yeah. how to describe it, but it's a wonderful smell. It's it's phenomenal and just like I I felt like I was in the zone when mm-hmm. I was down there. Like and nobody's walking by. I'm not like looking at some silly squirrel. Yeah. Like I was in the zone. I did what I needed to do. You were doing college like people did college in like 1720 yeah just like in the basement of a library reading old books (laughs) you felt this connection you're not yeah yeah, that's part of it too totally because i mean you have this preset notion of what it should be and you're not wrong like i felt like it's like a caricature of what education is yeah you know and I, i felt that connection and i enjoyed it i really did enjoy it um toward the end I was very tired. (laughs) So I did manage to graduate in four and a half years, even working that much, uh, because I was taking summer courses. So I would take both summer sections uh, because I wanted it to be done. Uh, I wanted to get into, you know, I felt so late. You know, I felt like the true definition of the non-traditional student. (laughs) Every time they said that, I'm like, bitch, you're talking about me. Stop. (laughs) I'm right here. Um, But I felt, you know, like I needed to get it done. And, you know, I'm glad that I did. And, uh, now I'm going to make another move. I don't know if I've talked to you since this has been affirmed. I believe you have. Yes. Yeah. So now we're moving into the next step, uh, which is uh, I'll be leaving DOS next year to leave the country. So uh, the wife and I, she went to Ecuador two years ago. Uh, she went with um, IUS. They went over on a trip to work on ESL incorporation. Uh, to students there in Quito, Ecuador, and then they went to a place called San Eduardo. And they also went with Little Water Company with this project called the uh, Water Step. So they take water filtration systems to people all over the globe to bring, uh, bring clean drinking water to individuals that don't have it. Have you listened to my wife's podcast yet? No, I haven't. You should. She talks about Water Step. Does she? Yeah. That's she, crazy. I believe she also went somewhere in South America. Nice. Yeah. So that's, that's really cool. The world's so connected. It is. That's wild. Um, but yeah, the wife has kind of had that bug since yeah. then. That was two years ago, and she's like poking and prodding me. When are we going? <laughs> when are we leaving? And you're like, I, I, I just started teaching. Um, I wanted to get another year's experience under my belt. Uh, but at some point, we had an epiphany like November. And we said to ourselves, why wait? Because... We don't have kids, so there's uh, not necessarily. I don't want to say holding back. I don't want to, you know, shit on people that have kids. Um, but I mean, there's nothing holding us back here that makes it more difficult for us to leave. So we had said that, and then at the beginning of the year, we filled out all the things that we needed to do 
uh, got all our recommendations, got our updated resumes in order. And at this point, I think we've applied for maybe 20 different countries. Uh, so we're really early in the process. We're just waiting to get some answers back. And we will most likely be in another country teaching in like August. That is amazing. Yeah. That is so cool. So the plan was always to be a teacher then. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I really? got my bachelor's degree, jumped right into uh, getting into a job at DOS uh, because between at some point during my college career, I had lost my job at Brown Foreman. Oh, wow. And then, uh, so there were some stresses involved with that. I imagine. But then I jumped into car sales, interestingly enough. Uh, so I worked at, uh, well, I don't want to name drop because I don't know how much they would align themselves with a, <laughs> a local reputable dealer. <laughs> um, but um, I did that for two years, which was interesting in itself. Because you talk about a different world. Yeah. Especially versus doing a job where you don't talk to people much. Uh, the average decibels on the floor was 125. <laughs> you had to wear earplugs. Yeah. So when you talk to people, you're like, Sup, bro? How's your weekend, dude? <laughs> so that was about on the extent of your conversation. Cool, man. <laughs> you got to try like, not to get like burned and shit too, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, actually, yeah, I worked a job called Char Fire in there where the barrels get the, the char on the inside, yeah. so they, they literally ignite the inside of the white oak barrel, uh, and it stays on fire for, I believe it's 22 seconds, something like that, then we'll come off and put it out, and it would come out of there on an average temperature of 265 degrees. Right. Fucking sucked. That's pretty cool. I didn't so mean to d- distract you, though, you are talking about car sales. Yeah, car sales, man, <laughs> what an interesting world that is, dude. <laughs> Like, never in my life have I had something to where I had to have such thick skin. Mm. I thought I had to have thick skin being in a band, you know, because we would just shit on each other all the time and that and do things like show each other testicles and, you know, uh, Corey Young, shout out, Mm. uh, he used to play this game. Uh, He would try to get as many people as he could to look at his dick at once. Wow. Was he good at it? Fuck yeah, he was good at it. Man, that's uh, an impressive feat. <laughs> we played this show, not to get derailed too far, but we played this show at Bulldog Cafe, and uh, we were out back, and it was a packed show. Uh, I, I don't remember who we were playing with, but it was like maybe 300 people. At least half of them were out back in between bands, people smoking, talking, hanging out. Um, and he is across the parking lot and starts screaming bloody murder. Everybody, ah, everybody over here, look over here. Look at my dick. And we all go, God damn it, Corey. He got about 150 people to look at his dick. Wow. I'm pretty sure he won that game. Man, you definitely could not get away with that shit in 2020. <laughs> you, um, yeah, he sexually assaulted 150 people. <laughs> they loved I'm, it. I'm sorry, Corey, and that never happened. Allegedly. That's, that's what I'm all alleged. Allegedly, yeah. we had talked about if this game were a thing. Uh, he He's now unemployed. I also know like three Corey Youngs. Yeah, Yeah, so I don't think you can get him in trouble because nobody knows which one I'm talking about. Um, Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. I won't give you any more clues. That's hilarious. So what happened at the car sales places? Like, so (laughs) what kind of things went down? I mean, people were probably mean to you, right? I imagine. Oh, my God. We were mean to each other. Oh, yeah. So it worked out okay. (laughs) uh, And I'm still I still work there. I worked there once a month. I I worked the front desk answering phones and things of that nature. But, uh, I mean, I I think I've made friends there that will be lifelong friends. uh, Just because they're – at the dealership that I was at specifically, this might not be – and I know that it's not a consistent thing. um, 
We were a family. That's awesome, dude. Like, we took care of each other. You know, if a customer came in and we weren't there that day, we would take care of each other. And car sales can be pretty cutthroat. Yeah. Very cutthroat. Um, but it was not like that at Man. this place. And I was so thrilled. But, boy, you had to have thick, thick skin because we would just joke on each other so hardcore. <laughs> uh, when I came in, I'd, uh, I'd worked at Coca-Cola. I've had a lot of jobs. Worked at Coca-Cola for like two months. And I lost 20 pounds while I was there. That job is rough. Just physical activity? Yes. Wow. Yeah, dude. So I was busting my ass there. And I came in. I was looking pretty good, pretty thin. I bought all my thin <laughs> thin fit shirts. I was looking good. And I was like, yeah, dude, I'm going to go not be in a warehouse. I'm going to wear a fucking suit and tie every day. It's going to be dope. I'm going to look sick. And, um, well, got comfortable uh, in car sales every day. You know, the guys were like, hey, you want to go grab lunch? And it just became this social mm. thing, and you just kind of fall into this social groove. And so I picked up a little weight, and they they noticed. <laughs> At one point, I think they said, I came in, I think the joke was, uh, dude, you look like you if you ate a smaller version of you. <laughs> I was like, fuck, man. I can't even be mad about that. That was good. But the burns came like that every day. There's uh, some lady who works there. Oh, We've had customers come in and go. Uh, she'll start to talk to them. And she'll be like, who are you? She's like, oh, I work here. And they go, you do? Because that's how poorly dressed she is. <laughs> She's a very lovely person. She is. Uh, but not professional in the slightest with her dress. Uh, and one day I burned her so good I came into the... Uh, the meeting, which the meetings were epic. Like we have Saturday meetings, sales meetings, and the manager will come in and present the numbers for the week, things that we got going on and so on and so forth. And those 10 minutes before the meeting starts on Saturday, it's Comedy Central <laughs> roast of whomever is the person that week. I mean, it's fucking brutal. But I came in and I just looked right at her without hesitation and I go, Oscar the Grouch called and he wants his sweater back. <laughs> and the whole room just falls out. And it it was fun. I mean, we never bullshitted each other about how we felt about anything with each other. So I ended up making really good friends because it was some of the most honest relationships I ever had. Yeah. Because it was just how we were to each other, you know? And I feel like there's not enough of that. Yeah. I feel like people... And I'm not going to go down some right-wing tangent because it's not me, but I think people are a little too soft and a little too sensitive about certain things. Now, I'm not going to go around dropping, like, the F word to gay people or anything like that. I am sensitive to certain things, especially being a theater kid. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but certain things, man, it's just a joke. Yeah. You you know intent, especially yeah. if you know somebody well enough. Intent is, is key. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Is this person trying to build a relationship with me because I have gay male friends. And one of the things I've learned is that male bonding requires ragging on each other. And so I wonder how close I can get to them if I'm not allowed to make fun of them. Mm. And I, and you know, so I, I play around with that idea and also in the environment in which you currently work, Ugh. That's that's a big part of it because you have to be very careful to be very politically correct, and you can have great intentions and say something ignorant by accident and get in a lot of trouble for it. You yeah that's that's 
you've hit on a really, really valid point, and it's tough for me. And I know I really toe the line of being inappropriate the majority of the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like my uh, default setting is inappropriate. Yeah. Um, so it is tough. It's tough in front of your students. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's tough to be two people because yeah. you do have to be two people in front of your kids. But the important thing, if individuals aren't familiar with our population at the school that Mitch and I worked, uh, formerly Mitch, still me, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot of trauma. Yep. It's a lot of poverty. It's a lot of tr- problems. There's a, The kids are facing a lot of adversity. I think if you don't find a way to be authentically yourself while also not being overly inappropriate, yeah. the kids have a really good bull- bullshit meter. Yeah. They know that you're not being true. And I think that's probably my strongest quality um, is building relationships with people because I am able to find that middle ground where you can just be your authentic self without being like, fuck you, kid, sit down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because obviously I can't do that, uh, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. It's interesting because, yes, there are certain people in the uh, the building that are maybe uh, in the woke culture, if mm-hmm. you will. And, and that's okay. I'm not going to hate on you. Uh, I do understand that, you know, the quote-unquote woke culture is a response to certain things. Right. I, I, I understand that you don't want to be hateful or mean to people, and I think it's a hyper-reaction to that. Mm-hmm. And I think we do see that in education, where it's like, you can't say that. Yeah, You don't get to be real about a lot of stuff. A lot of people will mask their real opinions. Uh, you'll see them say one thing in a meeting, and then you'll talk with them later, and they will give you a completely different opinion. Yeah. So there's a lot of blowing smoke. And that holds, I think that holds everybody back. It does, because I don't know if you ever noticed this, but in a meeting... I didn't do that. <laughs> if it was going to get me in trouble or not, I would get looks because I would say things that all of them are thinking, mm-hmm. but nobody has the balls enough to say it. You know, and it's like, you know that that's how we all feel. I know that because I've talked to you, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the real issue with education right now because it's, we're so worried about fair treatment and equity, which don't get it twisted. Yeah. I don't want to sound crazy. Yes, that is certainly an issue. Super important. But I think we went so far onto the one end to where we tie our hands on individuals who are consistently acting out in class and being mm-hmm. a danger to either the teachers or the other students. Yeah. And if you've watched the news, we had a principal at Aircoy get assaulted by four young ladies. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. And guess what? They got to come back to school. It, I, if that had happened at Butler... In 2001, I know for a fact those girls would never step foot in a school again back then. So I don't know what's happened. Yeah. But those sorts of actions should hold really serious repercussions. I think what the whole equity, I, I'm, a, I'm with you, giving everybody equal treatment. and give is, But that's different than giving everybody exactly what they need mm-hmm. in that moment. Right. And when you're teaching at a place with kids who are coming in with lots of challenges and lots of trauma. And that's coming from home mm-hmm. into the school building. And it's probably being exacerbated in the school building because they're surrounded by people who are also experiencing all of that trauma. Right. What those kids need is different yeah. than what kids 
who have more privilege need. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that those lines of privilege also kind of are parallel and, and close to other lines that are difficult to talk about like race. Um, but which is really what you're actually talking about really is poverty, which is what you talk about there. But there are parallels there because of systematic racism that has existed and has been prevalent for years. I get that. But when you really want to talk about fixing the problem, you got to talk about what does this group of individuals need? And you really got to do it on not even as groups. I mean, if ideally you would do it from student to student, what does this kid need? Where do they need to be? What kind of support do they need? But the resources to do that, where do those come from? Where do those come from? You jumped right to the point I would I was going to make. And I think rather than give them the things that they need, we end up going into the system of, of codifying the kid in a way that doesn't benefit them and doesn't benefit the system. Mm-hmm. Because you end up trying to make excuses for unruly behavior or for unruly action in the, in the building. And it just becomes problematic. And it spirals because the other kids see this. You know, and they think it's okay. You know, and a student who might not even normally think about engaging in that behavior might see this as normalcy, Mm -hmm. you know, because that becomes their environment every Mm -hmm. day. And if you're in a building where this looks like the norm every day, where kids are cussing each other out and uh, doing whatever nonsense they're doing in the hallway every day or in the classroom or in ISAP or whatever it might be, it becomes a problem. Yeah. And simultaneously, they're forced to go to classes where they're being taught pretty much nonsense mostly worthlessness yeah like when i talk about going back to teaching if i could go back to teaching you know what i would teach podcasting i would make a podcast that would be what i did and then any kid who wanted to make a podcast with me we just all do it together in the same room any questions that they had about what they needed to do i'd show them i'd show them how to use audacity or whatever other digital audio workspace and I'd help them with their social media accounts. I'd help them with all of it while I did mine. And that would be how I taught a class. But that's so crazy different from what we have that it's not unrealistic to expect our kids to be bored with what the state and what the country and what the district are telling us we have to teach that we're going to be tested on. That's that was, that was a big thing I experienced. So yeah, I, it's a it's a really weird, scary situation, which is part of the reason why I and I feel selfish. But it was it was a selfish decision, like I had to separate myself from it. Yeah, I won't say that it's a uh, it's not a part of the equation as to why I'm leaving. Uh, I enjoy my kids ninety percent of the time. It's that ten percent that really does make it very difficult. Um, whether that be things that you're dealing with, with box checking stuff that you have to do from the administration. And a lot, I know a lot of times that stuff's coming from even above their heads at the district level. So there's just a lot of things that I have to pick issue with. So it's really part of the reason that I'm moving up the timeline as to why I'm leaving the country. Um, because I am just curious because I have so many questions and I'm caught kind of an all or nothing type of person. For me, it's not okay to say that, well, I just have to expect that 40% of my students aren't going to succeed the way I want them to. That's okay for me. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not what I signed up to do. 
I want to reach as many of the kids as I can. So I want to go out in the world. I want to go to places like Finland. I want to go to places like South Korea. I want to go to uh, Japan. Some of these schools that are out here, the top performing schools year in and year out. And I want to see what they're doing differently than what we're doing. Now, I know I can address some of the things that I understand are going to be factors and why they succeed. That's going to be homogenized versus heterogeneous populations. Yes. For sure. Because, in, you know, in one of our classrooms, we might have six different religions. Yeah. We might have seven different ethnicities uh, and maybe 10 different languages spoken in one class. Yeah. And that is great for the student because they get to experience that diversity. But at the same time, makes teaching that group of people fucking hard. Nearly really impossible. fucking hard. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. <laughs> such a level with one teacher. Yeah. And it comes back to those resources. If we had all the proper resources that we need to address all these different uh, needs, we could make it work, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. But we don't, you know, and that stems from a lot underpaying of the teachers, mm-hmm. uh, not supporting the teachers, the overall opinions of teachers in general. Uh, as you've seen a lot of these protests when teachers are out here, um, marching on Capitol buildings for higher wages and things of that nature, you see some parents say some hateful stuff. Yeah. And you're like, wait, we're taking care of your most precious commodity, your children. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't you have our backs? Like, it doesn't make sense that you don't. Like, we're not being greedy. We're not being selfish because we went out for our best interest. So your kid had to miss a couple of days of school. You should understand the sacrifice that we're given every day. Yeah. But then also at the same time, a lot of what happens is, you get you, when we you, when you don't incentivize the best people to become teachers, not the best people become teachers, and people settle for the job. Some people who are really great at it stick in, stick out, stick it out, do a great job. But a lot of people who could be really good at it bail because they feel like they're not appreciated. Yeah, and so what you're left with is a lot of people who stay for maybe selfish reasons reasons and i'm not saying everybody but i'm saying there are those individuals just like there are everywhere else yeah i'm they're probably few and far between but people see and know people like that and so but that also stems from the fact that we haven't valued education the way that it needs to be valued we just have not and i don't know why it's weird maybe it's just because you need a lot of foresight to really appreciate the value that education is brings. And also maybe it's because the world has changed so much in the past 20 years that we just cannot keep up with the amount of change that needs to take place in the education system. But I think a lot of that's the factors and it's, it's interesting. It's again, going to be one of those situations where if you were to pull every person aside and have that individualized conversation about education. I don't think any person is going to disagree with you that it's important. Yeah. Not a, not a one. So it's like, where do we get this, this disconnect? So why is the funding being cut? It's, it's so interesting to me that we're supposed to be in this representative democracy and it doesn't seem they represent the real opinion of a lot of the people. Mm -hmm. Um, now, on certain issues, yeah, you get into a whole other thing. You talk about religious ideologies and things of that nature. But um, but on this one, it seems like everybody is on the same the same opinion. Yeah. We need it. Kids need to be smarter. Yeah. You know? And I don't think, I mean, if you look at it statistically, 
realistically, we are smarter than we ever were. Oh, yeah. You know, we um, the average person knows more things than the average person did 300 years ago because we're allowed to read and we yeah. can read uh, for the most part. <laughs> and we have access to tons of information in our pockets now, too. Dude, I mean, it's the compendium of all human knowledge. It's insanity. Yeah. Um, yet we use it to argue about silly things. <laughs> like like whether or not coronavirus is real, um, but yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting to see how this unfolds because being in a technological age where everybody has a phone in their pocket that is literally trying to suck attention from you at all times, always. Uh, that's literally its job. Because the marketing dollars come from that. Yeah. Your notifications from Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, um, email. And I, I try to explain this to my students. I'm like, I have this in my pocket too. And I use this for more than what you use it for. Yeah. I have my clock in app. They're my, my job, I can clock in on my phone. Um, I do my banking on my phone. I pay all my bills on my phone. I yeah. have applications just for my bill payments. Uh, I have my credit card apps on there. I have my phone or my card integrated into my phone that I can use my phone to pay for stuff. Like I use my phone for way more than you do. As a tool. As a tool. I use it for way more. So I'm going to get just as many notifications about things that you do because I'm on all those same apps. I'm not dead. I'm a human being. <laughs> But I find the balance in being able to sit in front of the classroom and do my job for five hours at a time, however long it's going to be before I sit down at lunch break. And I go, trust me, kids, I sit down at my lunch, I check my phone, see what text messages I have, you know, see if I've missed any important phone calls, you know, see if that argument on Facebook has degraded into some <laughs> craziness. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm addicted to my phone, too. The wife said to me this morning, last night, we were sitting at home, and we didn't really look at each other. We were sitting there buried in our phone, looking at all the craziness going on with this virus and all the kinds of other different stuff. We're trying to sell our house. So yeah. There's all kinds of stuff going on with that. I'm trying to sell stuff in our home. Trust me. I get it. It pulls at your attention, but we got to find that balance. Yep. Or we're fucked. Yep. Um, TikTok is especially diabolical. Whew. Have you ever seen it? I have. If you press the back... It just swipes to the next one. You got to press back twice to close the app. <laughs> so if you press the button that normally closes the app, it just swipes it to the next TikTok. It's crazy. We're leaving you. It's so designed to be addicting. As are all of them. I mean, that's kind of the yeah. the, the the gimmick with all of it. Yep. You know, they want you to be, you know, wired in at all times. And at some point, this will be like some weird version of the Matrix. <laughs> Not to go like too Malcolm Gladwell on you, but yeah. um, but we're going to have to figure it out. Yeah, like and, augmented reality goggles where everything around you is like simultaneously real and fake at the same time. Oh my God, it'll be so fucking weird. Then the world turns into some like weird version of Ex Machina. Like, oh, that'd be crazy. You're fucking somebody. You're like, this is a robot. <laughs> I can't tell. Yeah. You meet him at the bar. And you're like, I don't know. What was that? Uh, Westworld. Oh, my Man. God. Dude, Westworld is so beautiful. I haven't watched season two. Uh, season two. <sighs> I watched season one because it was. It isn't as good. I got that vibe. I got that vibe. It's still worth the watch. And I'm really excited to see if you've seen the trailer for season three to see where they're going to go with it. Um. But, I mean, what a cool idea. You know, and that idea comes from, I think Michael Crichton wrote that book 
40 years ago. Wow. Like, what? Was it as in-depth as the show where they're, like, literally building biological humans, like, out of cells, pretty much, and then they're just programming those? <sighs> no. I, it was a little bit more rudimentary in the idea of that it was robots that looked like people. Gotcha. It didn't go as much into, like, some of the detailed portions that mm-hmm. the show has done. So they've expanded upon the idea for sure. Yeah. But still, the fact that Michael Crichton... It's so interesting how sci-fi can oftentimes drive technology. Yeah. Like, if you've ever read uh, Ender's Game... Yes. Uh, he called it the web... Mm-hmm. He talked about a th- an internet-based thing called the web. Yeah, I believe is what he how he referenced it. If if I'm right, uh, if I remember right, and it's Orson Scott Card, right? Yes, That's the art. Um, and I was just blown away by some of the stuff that he was talking about. And I believe that book came out in what the 50s or the 60s. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> in Star Trek, I mean, yeah. Star Trek drives you know Gene Roddenberry with what he did with that series and being able to just push the the realm of possibility into what we have now you know the, if you'd had a automatic opening door in the 1940s people would have been like whoa that dude's a wizard he's a witch did you see that shit so yeah. he didn't even touch that door it is it's fascinating how that works and i just it blows my mind what we're going to be able to see it, it's it's but it's so hard to try to anticipate what those changes are going to be because when they're they happen they're going to happen in bursts Somebody's just going to have a breakthrough, and then all kinds of really cool and interesting stuff's going to happen after that breakthrough. And then nothing might change for a little while. So it's really... And I I also am slightly afraid that I won't live long enough to see it get really fucking cool. Like, um, people... Like, being able to experience other realities just by, like, plugging into some type of different artificial reality creating database or something like that like that's going to be so fucking awesome to be able to feel like you're walking on other planets and it feels so indistinguishable from real and we're definitely going to be able to to do that someday it's just like when it'd be really fucking cool if it happened sooner rather than later so i could experience it but it's also scary man it's gonna be a real problem though too it would be a humongous problem you know why porn yeah i mean how do you have a healthy relationship when you can just plug in yeah and kick it with literally <laughs> any form of person that you can imagine you know that'd be crazy i would be really concerned that's where it's going to come out first too because porn is where all the innovations in like Dude, media it, consumption come from yeah because you had the uh the virtual reality porn uh that you know you put on the uh you can do the Samsung like the goggles. You oh, do, yeah. Yeah, you can do the Oculus Rift. They have the porn for that. Those are those videos that you, as you're allegedly, as you're scrolling through Pornhub and it has the two things and you're like, what is this? This is strange. Mm. And it's always some step sibling of some sort. <laughs> I've never really <laughs> dabbled in VR a whole lot because I, it's expensive as shit and I can, don't want to buy all the little thingies. To do it well. Well, yeah. they did that one Oculus all-in-one uh, it was literally just the goggles, so you didn't have to have the uh, the CPU hooked up or any of that. I forget what it was called. It was the Oculus something. It sold out at Christmas. Like I was looking for it. I was kind of interested in mm-hmm. it, and uh, I got on it kind of late, I guess, because I didn't really know it was a thing until like November, and it was already like sold out everywhere. So eventually, it'll be cool and cheap, and oh, that's when I'll get sure, into yeah. it. <laughs> Innovation always drives price down too. Yeah. yeah. So, but. 
that's another thing. As a teenage boy today, can you, how, how, when did you graduate? 2007. 2007. So I'm six years younger than you. So did you have access to porn at any point in your pocket at all times? Never in my pocket. Um, I remember discovering naughty stories on the internet (laughs) (laughs) first and reading them which is just a testament how nerdy i am because i was like i love reading i I love erotica (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how old i was then maybe like 14 or 15 and then and then eventually there was porn on the computer but it was not good uh And it was hard to find. What do you mean not good? Like, like... it wasn't like consolidated in one place, just like so easy as it is now. And it would often, you'd have to search through like terrible, awful things. I thought you were Cisco and Ebert, you're porn, and you were like, well, really, this cinematography here is just (laughs) atrocious. That angle, she looks so fat. No, I just mean like it it could be very traumatic. At the same time as exciting, this the things you would see, and I remember it's still that way. Yeah, and I remember when LimeWire became a thing. Oh my god! And you uh, never knew what you were gonna get. Nope. It'd be like Jenna Jameson. Yeah. And then you would download it, and it was like Steve Buscemi. You're like, <laughs> I got fuck control here, man. This or it was like not... somebody shooting themselves in the head, because like, yes, me and my friend Jake, who's been on here, and all of our friends really. Like, that was one of the things we experienced when we were exploring online was we found, like, snuff films. Oh. And also, like, really graphic pornographic images and videos and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, like Blue Waffle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really faint. What's the Goat? Goat XC? Goat? Goatsy? It was, like, Goat.se. And it was, it was like, all the... It was, like, t- old dudes just giving it to each other. I may have not had to see that one. Yeah, avoid that one. I'm not going to go look for it. There's another one that was... (laughs) It was always hilarious uh, for me. I would save the homepage on my friend's computers before it was customary to have everything locked down. Yeah. I would go over to their house and there was this website called Meat Spin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You you could get to it by going to like some government... Like, uh, I can't remember what it was, but we would spend, we would send it to each other often. Oh yeah. See how many spins you could get. Well, I would save it as their homepage. (laughs) So when they would open their browser, it would immediately go to meat spin. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if you ever left it playing long enough, but if you leave it playing long enough, the counter on the meat spin, if it gets to like, I don't know, it's like 300 and it's, it pops up on the screen. It's like, you're gay or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Wow. But no, yeah, your point is definitely, like, I, I definitely was given access to porn in ways that people in generations before me were not, but not like it is now, man. It's a, that's, that's pretty much what I've read is that girls use the internet to be mean to each other, like on social media and stuff like that, and boys use it for games and porn, and that's pretty much it. Um, so that's what we're competing with. That doesn't feel like an- anecdotal data. That feels 100% accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And when you say... Also, like, as somebody who's removed from the dating pool, like, I've been with the same girl for 18 years. So, my wife and I, Emily, have been together, you know, since I was 19. And, you know, I graduated in 01, so you do the math, 02, I guess, 02, 03. Um, I did not have these crazy smartphones. I still had, like, the old... I had some original flip phones and things of that nature. So 
I've kind of seen it progress through the whole thing, and I'm also very technologically inclined. So like I've I've moved with it. So I've you know at least I've tried. I consider myself pretty savvy with it. But I think the thing that's really changing is the dynamic of relationships. Um, I don't know that people know how to be in a relationship anymore. And the, I have several friends who are in the dating pool right now, and this instant gratification culture is a problem because they talk about they'll meet girls on Tinder. I have one friend said he had met a girl on Tinder. They hooked up, which it's pretty much just a hookup app now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like you go to Tinder for hookup, you go to Match um, for a, a month-long relationship that's going to end with her taking half your shit. <laughs> Uh, so it breaks down into like certain things, but he said that after he hooked up with this chick, he went to use the bathroom. By the time he came back, she's on the side of the bed on Tinder looking for the next person. Yeah. And you're like, what? It seems like those are designed to be a little bit addictive as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because you get the constant notifications. Oh, you matched with somebody. Right. Um, That dopamine dump. Yeah. So it's what is that going to do to relationships? Because realistically, can a relationship be as fun as that game? Mm. That's a great question. Well, no. Oh, and definitely not as long as that game can be fun because the variety. Yes. I, it's, I, I dabbled in the app dating. So I got out of a long relationship when I was like 26 and, um, and before, I was in that relationship for like two years. And then before that, I'd been single for a while. And I had no real luck with the apps because I was chubby. But then I lost some weight. And I started to have a little bit more luck with the apps. But the whole time, I was always actually, I mean, I wasn't going to close any doors. But I was looking for like someone to be in a relationship with. Because I was in my late 20s, and that's what I was actually looking for. But, and that was also in like 2016. So maybe four years ago. But now I know that it has changed a lot. And I have friends also who are kind of in that dating game. And it's way different. It's almost all app. Almost completely. Which is interesting because I didn't meet my wife on an app. I ran into her at a bar. So I did it like you did it in the 70s. <laughs> Bruh. So it, it had cyburns? Oh, yeah, you, for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. The whole evening had cyburns. <laughs> Just draped. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like it's coming into that exponential component that you're talking about. Like, there's a new dating app that hits a more specific need every week. It's mm-hmm. like farmers mingle. Yeah, you know, there's like a dating app for every social class that you consider consider yourself to be a part of, and it's like it gets more and more niche, but it also gets more and more divisive for me. I guess. Because it's really taken, like, you look like a creep now if you try to talk to a girl at a bar. Like, I've watched this happen to my friends. My buddy, uh, my buddy Ben, um, I don't know if you know him, Ben Fowler. He, I definitely have heard of him. Yeah, he's friends with a lot of people. He's a South End King, boy. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was, we went out one night, and, you know, my other buddy is in a relationship. I'm in a relationship. But my boy Ben is single. So we're just kind of like watching him. I feel like we're watching like National Geographic. It's like, and here he is in the wild in his natural habitat here at the club. This is an older male. <laughs> More mature. <laughs> and he approaches the beautiful gazelle. <laughs> so we would watch him just strike out because it seemed like the girls weren't even interested in talking to anybody like 
actually there. And the only luck he had was with a girl who was a 31, 32. You know, maybe somebody that knew what it was like to actually have human interaction mm-hmm. with the intention of maybe talking later. <laughs> yeah. It was so strange, man. And it just seems, and we probably sound really old right now. It's fine. Um, but it, it just seems strange to me. It, the weird thing about it is that I can appreciate it. Yeah. Because there is a intimacy and a, to just personal interaction, especially with strangers. Mm-hmm. And it can be extremely, without practice especially, anxiety-inducing. You can get it's so for some people even it can be nerve wracking to have to go through a grocery line and talk to a cashier, um, and sometimes I've had really awkward experiences with cashiers, so I understand why people try to avoid that. But it reaches a point where it's like you don't interact with any people in real life. I know that there are some people who don't interact with any people in real life, and when they do, they dislike it, and that's unfortunate because I understand that that's something we have to have. We we as humans in these meat bodies that we are currently existing in have to have meaningful interaction with other people or we get sick. And that sickness, I think, manifests itself sometimes in like anxiety and depression, which we see everywhere now, everywhere now, especially in the classroom. I mean, like 90%, I don't want to say 90%, I'd say more than half of the young people that I was teaching at DOS were definitely suffering from anxiety and depression. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah. And a lot of it is, I think, I mean, like a lot of the reason why I think, I mean, you experience this, they don't turn any homework in. They don't do the work at all. I think they're anxious about doing the work. Some of the kids, not all of them, just like those kids that you think about who don't ever do anything. They have a high level of anxiety about actually demonstrating their capacity to do any of this work because it would be embarrassing. Yeah. So like I, I just see it in so many people. I see it in so many places and it's in myself as well. I suffer from anxiety and depression sometimes. And it really, one thing I've learned is that it really tends to mirror my own behavior. And so that's one of the things that, uh, I don't know. I just think about that a lot. And I, th- I thought about that a lot as a teacher. And one of the things that I realized was because I was getting depressed being in the classroom, I was then modeling really unhealthy behavior to my students. And that bothered me a whole lot. Yeah. So another part of the reason why I left the classroom, I'm actually writing a small, it started off as supposed to be short, but it's really more of like an op-ed and it's just called why I left the classroom right now. I and, think, I think stuff like that's really important right now so that people can kind of have an insider look because who better to tell people some of the issues that are in the classroom than somebody that actually was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I, I felt myself in a similar boat to you. I don't really deal with anxiety or depression. Thank goodness. Uh, my wife does. She's highly, uh, anxious person. And, uh, for years I was like, why don't you just relax? You know, because I didn't understand, you know, and I would say things like just, why are you worried about it? Don't worry about it. Not understanding that that's not an option. You know, that she doesn't go, okay, and turn it off. It just it doesn't work that way for her. Now, my issue and my concern in the classroom manifested itself in the way of anger. Mm. Um, I would get really upset with the kids. Uh, 
and I realized that I would start the day off on a bad note. Mm. And and I've just made this shift again in the last couple of weeks. Like actually last application day or last week for those that don't know what the hell an application mm. day is. <laughs> uh, last week. I found this video. There's a guy named Prince EA. Uh, he does a series of motivational videos on YouTube. And I found one talking about you only get one opportunity at this life. He's like, on your deathbed, you're not going to be upset with yourself about the things that you did do, but more likely the things you didn't do. And it went through a series of things that were similar to that sentiment. And I started the class with that. And then I told the kids, I love you. I was like, I love every single one of you in here. I was like, this is a difficult job. It's like there's 150 teenagers. Imagine that's what you're working with every day. And they all go, that's fair, that's fair, okay. And But I love you guys or I wouldn't come. I was like, imagine, do you think I make enough to come in and deal <laughs> with the things that I deal with? I make 42 grand. I'm really upfront with them about everything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I make 42,000. I made, I took a, uh, I was a mediocre car salesperson and took a $20,000 pay cut. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like if I wanted money or cared about that, I would stay there. It was easier than this, it really was. And the majority of the time, I could leave it there. Yeah, I didn't have to take ourselves home most that's of a, the time. That's a huge part of it that I don't think people understand. Yeah, and it, it, even if it's not us grading at home, if it's not us making lesson plans at home, it's 150 students that you really do care about. I call them my kids. I don't normally call them my students, and I tell them this: I call y'all my kids. You know, and they might laugh, you know, because they're ninth graders. <laughs> oh, Mr. Morris, you goofy dog. But it is what it is. You're my kids. And I do love you. And I feel like I need to say that more rather than, all right, guys, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Half of y'all are failing in here. I don't understand why you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's very clear what you're supposed to do. I could do that every day. Yeah, well, it's because your performance is being... Based r- upon theirs. Based upon theirs, and that's not fair. No. But next year, you're going to be somewhere in the world. Do you think that video that you showed your kids inspired you to make that that plunge? Like, you only get one life, really live it, and now, this time next year, you're going to be in? That's always been my my attitude anyway. Really? I don't save much, Yeah, <laughs> for better or worse, <laughs> but what I do is I, I capitalize on every experience that I can. Yeah. Uh, this year, we've went and seen five comedians. We've been to three concerts. Uh, we just went and saw Zach Brown Band and Amos Lee in Lexington. Cool. Saw Burt Kreischer. We, saw, we drove down to Nashville at Christmas to see, um, uh, God, what is his name? Trey Crowder. Mm-hmm. Then we drove back down there to see Pete Holmes. Um, I mean, we are going to see the Head and the Heart, provided the can- the concert doesn't get canceled. We're going right. to see Mike Birbiglia. We're mm. going to see Joe Rogan again. Mm. Uh, so it's one of those things. It's like I would rather have experience, but I also do have a problem with stuff, too. Yeah. Like, uh, it, you saw my suits. Yeah. Yeah, it's problematic. But I really do enjoy experience, and I'm really kind of weaning myself off of the product and materialism. Well, you look fabulous in well, those thanks. suits. Uh, yeah, you did. <laughs> but 
we're trying to capitalize on all the experience. We've been, always been really good with that. When I was in a band, I mean, I might not have had shit to show it for it, but we traveled and played some fun shows. I traveled. Uh, I went to New York and Syracuse. I went to New Jersey uh, for a festival called Hellfest two years in a row, two of my best experiences of my whole life. Um, so I've always been very much the person to capitalize on experience. And luckily, having good friends... You know, that's what a lot of people don't realize. You know, like some of the members of my family, they're like, how do you do all this stuff? How do you have the money for it? Well, sometimes I don't have to pay for stuff. You know, if you have good friends and you keep a good group, sometimes they'll, they'll call you up. Hey, man, something happened. I got this extra ticket. You know, that happens with me with shows all the time because I have a ton of theater friends. Right. So I'll get a phone call. Hey, man, I know you like shows. You want to come with me tonight to go see Miss Saigon? That's or tight. Jesus Christ Superstar, mm. which is like an $80 show. And they're like, I just don't want the ticket to go to waste. You don't even have to pay. Come and buy me a beer or something. That's where I am. And I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah. You know, and capitalize on the experience. That's yeah. always been my mindset. So, yes, videos do. They're more affirmation for me mm-hmm. rather than inspiration because I'm always trying to kind of keep that mindset. Like, let's move to the next thing. I don't stay stagnant well. I don't. My wife is like that too. She is not somebody who sits still well. She's always like, what's the next thing we're going to do? You know, what's the next project we're going to do? What's the next vacation we're going on? Nice. It's always moving forward to that next experience. You know, and they say they say that the experiences that you have are far better than anything that you can buy yourself materialistically. Right. Because you get to look forward to do it, then you do it, and then you have the memory of doing it. Right. I've, I've, that's similar to what I've read also, that... Once you have something, the novelty wears off quickly, but the memory of an experience is always relivable. So how many places did you apply for to teach abroad? Uh, let's see. So we applied for a little island uh, off the coast of South Korea. It's called Juju Island. We applied there. Um, it's the St. Jonesboro Academy. looks amazing. It's absolutely gorgeous. So um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but are these... I imagine they're like schools for expats or is English speaking schools? Uh, yeah. 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 Most of them are predominantly teaching in English, um, so that you're not too necessarily worried about the language barrier. Mm -hmm. Uh, so most of the kids have a baseline and a lot of the schools are international schools anyway. Yeah. So they're incorporating like, it's crazy. Like 70 national nationalities are represented at some of these schools. Um, so that's really interesting. That's what I meant by expats, like people who are living in this country, but they live in other countries Okay, and they're getting educated in English because everybody speaks English. Right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know what you meant by that. I was going to yeah. So that's really, really cool. My friend, Derek Thomas, he's a big wig engineer for some company in Saudi Arabia, but is the reason he's in Saudi Arabia, actually he's in United Arab Emirates. Yeah. He's in the United, he's in the UAE. Yeah. That's one of the most, uh, lucrative places to teach they pay their teachers really well yeah um his wife teaches there that is my fear it's the only reason i don't consider going there if i'm being completely honest he's in abu dhabi and he loves it abu dhabi's great but literally as soon as you leave that area uh, there's a bunch of areas right around the united arab emirates that don't necessarily see women as equal uh and things of that nature and our whole point of like going to some of these places is to travel like we don't want to stay you know, secluded into one place. 
So we really want to end up in Europe, which is why we've applied at places. I just applied in Germany yesterday, uh, which is a nice opportunity. I would love Germany. I've never heard not one bad word about it. Uh, we applied in Romania, Portugal, uh, Spain. We've applied uh, Singapore. We've applied Thailand. I mean, we've applied a bunch of stuff. We want to keep our options open, and we're really flexible uh, with where we do go. Um, but I, I, I don't want to sound like a bigot, right? But it's like I, it's it's, it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Culturally, some of those co- uh, countries right around there, there's about three of them that are still practicing like Sharia law. So it's like, eh. just in case that is where you go, Derek Thomas, you listen to this. Reach out to my my man Andrew Morris. We're friends, my friend on Facebook, and let him know how awesome it is in Abu Dhabi. But of all the places Jiu-jitsu. you could go, oh hell yeah, yeah. Where would you go though? Of all the places. Uh oh, we applied in Switzerland. That would be your pick. That's you can learn a shit ton there. It's freaking beautiful. The school systems are very highly rated. The overall happiness of the individuals that live there, they're always in like the top five. Um so yeah, and it's centrally located. So we could kind of be a hop, skip, and a jump from a lot of places in Europe, which is really one of the big goals for us is to kind of get out and see a lot of portions of Europe. Um, Juju Island, South Korea, that was one of the first applications that we put in uh, just because it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, so that would be nice. It's warm. The wife hates the cold. Uh, I'm whatever. If it's if I'm in some place that's seasonal and it's cold outside, I go, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I just don't really sweat it. I'm like, it's supposed to be cold, neat. Okay, I'll put on a jacket. It's whatever. So I have a lot of questions about this. My first question is, is your main motivation for going to learn how to be a better teacher? Is that a big part of the reason why you want to do this? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, one of my end goals is I I would really maybe like to even start a video blog or something like that and you just kind of give my thoughts as I'm on this trip you know because now that I am in the field here you know I have a lot of educator friends and I would like to share those experiences with them um, just to kind of give them some insight into what's going on elsewhere so that maybe that we can all benefit from it be like listen this is some of the things that they're doing I see that they're doing this Uh, this is amazing what can we do here uh, maybe even write a book. I, I wouldn't mind doing that later. Um, that's been an aspiration of mine for a while. I absolutely love reading. I love knowledge in general. So maybe that might be one of the goals of that, but definitely to learn. Uh, because like I said before, one of the driving forces for me is like, what are we doing wrong? Because it seems like, you know, we're 13th. Uh, the last report that was released, we're 13th in the world as far as our outcome of education. And we're outspending other countries twofold. So some of the top performing schools in the world, it's not about resources because we're spending more. Right. So it's like, what are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a disproportionate opportunity for kids in certain areas? Right. Because my wife went to, uh, what is the school? This begins with an S. It's in the East End. It's an elementary school. I, I can't remember the name right now. But, for example, uh, but they offer six different languages. Wow. In an elementary school. They have a full theater program. This year they're doing The Lion King Jr., which the rights alone for that show are $5,000. Wow. So, <laughs> 
it definitely doesn't seem that that is the equivalent of what maybe like Greenwood Elementary has. Right. So maybe that's where the numbers are skewed because you're including all those schools and the the resources that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just wonder like what models can we change? So I want to see these things firsthand. I don't want to just read about it. I want to go there. I want to be in it. I want to experience it and see what truly makes the difference. And I think it's cool because you also get to go in with the understanding that like some of the things you're observing are able to happen because of things like a really homogeneous population of people or, you know, an an unfair representation of privilege over poverty in these specific schools. But you also have been in this, the, environment that you're trying to impact so you know what to pick out of that and you know what could benefit people and what couldn't and that's going to be super valuable i think that video blog idea is a super cool idea um i don't know we've talked about education a lot I'm, i'm glad it's something that i am passionate about and that i think if people had a better understanding of it um the world could be a better place for sure if people really understood what's going on and how how we are succeeding and how we are failing and just and then we could move on from there and really try to make meaningful improvements to the education system but that's just not happening it's really weird it's like this back and forth like political battle that happens really from the governor down that's where all the decision making comes from and it just hurts the education system overall it just hurts it overall and people should really we should really be talking about that because it has a it has an impact on our children, and we have no more valuable resource than them. So, it seems know. like we've had the first step of the process. There's a recognition of an issue. Yeah, it, which is is odd that it, we've had the recognition that there has been an issue because at one point we were the front runners. Yeah, you know we were the leading innovators in education, and we were hitting the ground running. You know and I'm not going to say I, you know, run back to a day that was the great times of this country because there was also a lot of really problematic things going on, like racism and things of that nature, like in the 50s and the 60s, when we were really leading the front for education. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes you wonder, is what we're doing with the changing of a more liberalized education as great as we think it is where we are let the kids choose this and let them just have freedom of choice and things of that nature and i do understand the benefit to those things but when you go and you look at some of the places like south korea i can tell you right now south korea has a very traditional style of education mm-hmm. uh and i really think <clears throat> that's going to be a big part of the issue when i go abroad um i actually had a professor at whose name I'm spacing on right now, which sucks. Uh, but I had him as one of my English professors at IUS. And he literally took an entire class period to talk about the benefits of teaching abroad. Because mm-hmm. me and him were talking about it. And he's like, all right, guys, we're going to talk about something that I think is important. And he took the whole class period because he had been to 15 different countries. He had three doctorates. He had multiple master's degrees, things that he had gotten abroad. Uh, so he was a lifelong learner. Great dude. And I feel really bad. I can't remember his name right now. Um, 
<laughs> but he had talked about one of the things that if I had planned on it, if I go to places uh, like Asian countries, like uh, Japan, parts of China, South Korea, he said, it's so structured. He's like, the students would never, ever think about speaking when you speak. Ever. The students will not make eye contact with you. It's a sign of disrespect to look an elder in the eye in a lot of those places. So he said it was it was a little disorienting and a little off-putting mm-hmm. at some points because here we get pissed off. Look at me in the eye when I talk to you. you yeah. know, it's, and that's a sign of respect here, which is odd that it's so different there. But he said that the main thing is that the family would be appalled if a student had really upset a teacher or disrespected a teacher. Mm-hmm. So it was a community idea of education. So realistically, that's probably the main problem is the, the familial unit that's really... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. And and then the structure around that unit. So I, I'm a, you you kind of, you touched on a word that means a lot to me, which is community. I'm a big community guy. I think we all need to have really strong, tight-knit communities of really valuable people around us and invest in each other and and like that's really where happiness comes from i already talked about how you have to have interpersonal communication and interpersonal connection to be even be happy but also that's where real growth comes from is from having people around you to hold you accountable and to having people around you who love you and invest in you just kind of like you were saying with your friends who take you out to shows and stuff that's so crucial and we've lost that in a lot of things um i don't know it's it almost sounds like hippies like a hippie hippie concept like we should try to go back to like a more communal way of living and stuff like that but the benefits of that are obvious so how do you make something like that work in a global economy in a global society it's a really really interesting question well realistically the world has gotten amazingly smaller yeah you're right uh, as we're all more interconnected with with the economy we're interconnected with the internet where you know it's not uncommon for you to reach out on a daily basis to your friend in australia right you know and so it seems like we have the tools there it's just that we're underutilizing the things that we have at our disposal so it, it, it does become a question of how do we capitalize on using these things for our advantage. And it, it's it's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever read the books by Sebastian Junger, Tribe. I've not read it, but I'm familiar with the concepts. I need to give it to you. Okay, cool. Uh, I actually taught a whole unit on it uh, at Fern Creek. That's cool. Yeah. She gave me, like, oddly enough, the teacher that I was working with there, shout out to Heather Jones, um, I was working with her there, and she had brought all these books from this um, English convention thing that she went for uh, for teachers of trying to think NEA convention, I think. And uh, the book was sitting there, and I was like, "Oh, dude, this guy was on Joe Rogan. I really wanted to read this book. I read it in like two days, and like I took it home that day from her class. I was reading it home, and then I was reading it the next day when I should have been probably been paying attention to what she was doing <laughs> teaching, <laughs> but." uh I was like, I'm teaching a unit on this. She's like, yeah, go right ahead. And it discusses everything that you're talking about. You know, it goes back to the origins of human beings. Because initially, 
to survive, we had to have each other. You couldn't do it on your own. No. It was impossible. You would die. Yes. A wolf would eat you in the night. Or a sloth. Yes. <laughs> a wolverine. <laughs> Something was just going to eat your face off while you're sleeping, which is why people are afraid of the dark, um, which he covers a little bit of that in there, too. Um, but it's it's a really interesting book because it talks about the things that we don't necessarily think about. We know that things are the way we are, and oftentimes we don't think about why. So think about the fact that you live in these tight-knit communities. You don't have to worry about a bear mauling you when you walk out the door 99.9% of the time. Because we've killed them all. Yeah, we're in these nice, comfy, cozy cities, and we sort of eliminate a lot of the problems. So that's good and bad, because back in the day, you had clear purpose. Survival. Everybody's main job every day was, how do we live to see tomorrow? They had to get up and work the fields if, you know, they were uh, in a later generation where we had learned how to cultivate and had mastered a little bit of agricultural knowledge. Thousands of years after we originated and lived as nomads in small groups as hunter-gatherers. Yes. Yeah. And and in those times, you had to worry about hunting. Where were you going to go hunt that day? Let's hope that we can find something that we can eat. Let's uh, scavenge enough berries uh, that we that we can get get us through till the next day. Everything was about survival. And something somebody told me a story back then. I don't remember where I heard this, but it was like hunting back then was basically just like war. Because you were you were going in with like sticks and rocks with like you and like five of your best friends and family members. And you were going to attack this animal that could potentially kill one of you. Mm-hmm. So y'all were just trying to like just, it was a lot like war. And so, you know, that just kind of goes back to like sports. Like football is basically just controlled war. Yeah. And it's all down to like, it's really in teams and tribes, which is interesting because tribalism is also kind of bad. So it's really weird. Yeah, it can be. You know, it's it can easily fall into and fall prey to uh, poisonous ideologies, you know, where you have individuals like what happened. I actually was just teaching a lesson on what had happened in Charlottesville, you know, and all those individuals from the alt-right uh, marching in there. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily great. Um, also, I think the individuals in, in Antifa is not good because should we go out and punch people in the face that don't agree with us? No, we should have civil discourse. Civil discourse. Uh, and I think that this medium... Uh, podcasting lends itself to that very well. And I think that that's why the popularity of Joe Rogan is such a f- phenomenon because that guy brings on everybody. Yeah. And people get pissed off and it's like, well, that's why you suck because <laughs> you surround yourself with people that only cater to your specific ideology. Yeah. And I do, ha- I have friends in my friends group that don't necessarily get along with other friends in my friends group. Okay. Well, we're adults. We can understand how to be in spaces together without biting each other's head off. And it seemed to work so far for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I do question certain people at certain points. I go, Jesus Christ, what are you talking about? Yeah. But they probably think the same thing about me. You know, and you just have to remove yourself from yourself sometimes. Yeah. Step outside. Like, maybe people think I'm fucking crazy. Oh, dude, I know people. Sometimes at work, I'd get to talking about artificial intelligence and shit like that. And I think, man, these people think I'm nuts. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd just be talking about, like, how when I was, uh, something I would concern concerned about when I was in the classroom was, like, the amount of effort that I was receiving was frightening because 
it suggested to me that businesses would choose to automate before they would hire some of the young people in the classes that I was teaching because they were much, much more likely to get a quality, consistent product from automating whatever system or whatever, you know, procedure that built their product. And so that frightened me because I was like, man, there's a lot of kids in here who are really not super employable. But I'd get to talking about artificial intelligence and people would look at me like, you are out of your mind, <laughs> which is probably a little bit true. I tend to, I like to rush the timeline because like I said before, I'm excited to see it. Yeah. And I'm scared that I won't get to see it. If it takes too long, I won't. Because one of the things that I've dealt with, maybe only recently a little bit, I'm 31, is like I'm going to die. Which means someday things will be happening and I won't get to experience those things at all. I won't, in, in my own interpretation of existence, I won't experience them or understand them as existing at all. And that is frightening. And I didn't mean to take it to like a crazy deep place, but... Well, let me comfort you. Okay. Chris Hitchens said something that made me feel real comfortable with that thought. He said, there were six billions six billion years of knowable time in this galaxy, this universe, this system that we know could be older. Six billion years. Do you remember any of that six billion years? No. Then who cares? <laughs> well, so, I, I kind of care about that a little bit too, because I'm interested in that as well. <laughs> well, I just know that it didn't, it doesn't impact me now. Yeah, you're now right. Now that I'm here, I have no thought about all that time that I wasn't here. Mm -hmm. I'm in the now. And then when it's, you know, that snap comes, that good old Thanos and I disappear and I'm not going to know. See that, 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 that's where I'm at with it. You can believe whatever you want. That's fine. But I don't think any of that's going to matter because even if I just cease to be, I won't care because I won't be here. <laughs> That's that's interesting. It might be panic inducing for some people. They're like, "Fuck, yeah." Ah, but for me, it's just comforting. I'm like, "Well, I don't remember any of that, so it's not going to bother me that this stops to be." That's fair. Just to live in the now, so that yeah. every not to sound too cheesy, but we're in the present because it's wrapped in a beautiful bow. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> that's true. And you know, I, I don't, I don't think I wouldn't say that I'm uh, in a panic because I'm gonna die, but I, I would say that. It makes me, maybe it makes me be in a hurry. And that's probably a problem. Because I want to just like experience as much as I can. And I want to see as much as I can. And I need to slow down and be more in the present. And that was something that also comes up a lot on this podcast. Which is like this concept of mindfulness. Like being aware of the moment that you're in when you're in it. Because that's kind of the most valuable thing that you can do. But we were talking about mindfulness, and that's been kind of a theme of the podcast, and it's something that I like to talk about only because I'm learning about it. I, I don't want to put out the impression that like I'm like a guru or anything stupid like that. I just you I, definitely got a guru body. No, I don't. Yeah, I got a I got a Buddha body. <laughs> Actually, you don't. Yeah, it's a no. false representation of the real Buddha. That's true. The actual Buddha was very handsome. Yeah, this very. fat representation is bullshit. I learned that from one of my Buddhist buddies. Doesn't it represent like his fullness of being, like the fatness? Like he was fully realized being. He was enlightened. Uh, yes, there was that. And then it's the depictions of happiness, fat and happy. 
you know. Um, so that was one of the things that was talking about, you know, when we were talking about, you know, enlightenment and things of that nature. It was a representation of all that. Yeah, so you're not wrong. That's interesting. I, I just finished reading. I told you I read Waking Up. Uh, uh, oh, so good. Waking Up Spirituality Without Religion. And basically Sam Harris, who is a big time atheist. Mm-hmm. And honestly, because I had been a Christian, I was kind of averse to Sam Harris because he's divisive. And he doesn't mince words, and he's not very agreeable. So he'll say things, and he doesn't really care what other people think about him. So I see he's less so than um, Christopher Hitchens, who is, I, I would consider he is like militant atheist. Yeah. Uh, and Richard Dawkins is kind of like Chris Hitchens' light. Yeah. Uh, so Richard Dawkins is the, uh, the God delusion, uh, which was probably one of the biggest turning points in my life. Um, so jumping off into this, when my father died, I did some soul searching. Uh, before that, I would probably have considered myself agnostic. Uh, and that book was what made me make the full jump and leap and commitment into saying, okay, I'm an atheist. Um, if your listeners are open, I would highly recommend giving it a read and just to see, uh, maybe work through the thought. Okay. And, and I don't think, I think so many people get scared and my wife said that she encountered this when she was in the church. A lot of the the issue becomes they're not open to the question of things. She'd be like, well, why did that happen? Well, don't worry about the why. Just, just know that it did. And you really should always challenge all of your beliefs because if you're not challenging, then how do you know they hold up? Right. How If, if, you're, if, if you're pursuing truth, shouldn't you constantly challenge yourself? Yes. But I think the question is, are you pursuing truth? Is that your pursuit? Um, and but yeah, that that's is, probably true. Yeah, because I think about that for myself. Because I am pursuing truth. That's yeah. why I like science, and I like the fact that that information updates itself and consistently lends itself to understanding that it those previous answers were predicated on the knowledge we had at the time. Right, and then the things change. So I, I do. That's my ideology. So I do kind of put myself in a, a box a little bit. I do too. And I think then, of it the same way. Like, why would you not be seeking after the truest explanation of events? Yeah, you can. You can. The best decision making is based upon the truest representation of events. And Sam Harris talks about it like from a very pragmatic point of view. He talks about spirituality and mindfulness. And he talks about the benefits of Eastern religion. So bringing back to the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And he talks about, but he talks about it from the point of view of like, I don't believe in any of the woo. I don't want you to think I'm talking to you about (laughs) karma. I don't think you're going to open up your mind's eye and be able to fly into alternate dimensions. He was like, ultimately what it is for me is it's learning to pay more attention to what's happening around you. And the way that he described it, he goes into this long ass explanation of what consciousness is. Mm for a long ass time, the best description you can give of it is it's just like what you are is your experience of everything around you. That's what you are. You're not your body. You're not your thoughts. You're just that experience of what's happening around you. And then he says, mindfulness is being aware of that as much of the time as you can and making decisions that are going to make you have the best experience. Because that is what you are. And so he talks about meditation from the point of view of just trying to be more aware of that state. And it was really, really interesting to me. And it, it 
the way he describes it is from the perspective of like a neuroscientist because I think that's what he is. Isn't he, he is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like he describes consciousness from the context of the structure of the human brain, and I was lost for a lot of that part, but I took him. I took his word for it, which, you know, because he's a neuroscientist. Yeah, so. he's the expert, yeah, on yes. how that works. And and also he described it in a way that could make sense to the layman if you listen to it three times, which I did. I had to do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't listen to the book three times, but he does address it enough on the Waking Up podcast um, where he revisits a lot of the same ideologies over and over again and some of the conversations that he has with uh, the varying intellectuals that he has on there. Uh, it, you're, you're right. It, it can be exhausting sometimes uh, just because you might think you're smart. Yeah. <laughs> but you're really not probably unless you are the Elon Musk of the world right. or the Sam Harris or, uh, you know, some of those people as you, you know, hold up and revere as some of these crazy intellectuals, Jordan Peterson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the people that literally are thinking about nothing but how to educate themselves and be more intellectual every single day. Right. And they're doing these intellectual gymnastics every single day with right. other smartest people on the planet. And they're getting paid for it. That's, That's what, what so, life. So they're doing it all the time. That's yeah. what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to listen to these people talk and just to hear what they think, hear how their brains work. That's that's why I, I mean that's why I love podcasts. Mm -hmm. I mean, they I've learned more from listening to podcasts in the past three years than I've learned from reading books. I've learned a lot from reading books. Oh, same. Uh, but I've learned, I, I've been turned on to a lot of the books I've read by listening to podcasts. So, I mean, like, For sure. the real, like, catalyst of the, of the information that I learned was the podcast in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just like, it's just such a great, it's a great way to really spread positive information. That's what's so cool about the internet. Mm -hmm. um, There's no policing. Right. It's not, before you had these gatekeepers who were controlling the things that you could hear on the radio and the things of that nature. They're like, mm, that's a little too risky. I don't know that we can do that. Our advertisers might not support that ideology, so we can't do that. Now everything is held in the hands of the individual. So you can just put it out. They give you a format. They give you a platform. Whatever you're using to put up your podcast, uh, it's your decision. What do you think is going to be something that people want to listen to? You know, or you just don't edit anything and just let the, the, mm -hmm. the conversation happen naturally and more organically. And we talked about, we were bringing it back as on our coffee piss break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were talking about that sense of community that people have felt like they maybe have lost, which maybe is part of the reason that you can connect to so, such a high levels of depression and anxiety in this society today because we've lost some of that. Well, I think that is the very thing that lends itself to the popularity of podcasts because it's a conversation. So I can be in my car and feel like I'm legit a part of this conversation. I can be in my jog. I can be cutting the grass. And I feel like I'm connected to a conversation with other people. Yeah. And I think this is like we're in this renaissance of this because people are coming to that realization. And they're like, there are other people out there that feel the same way as me. Or you get individuals who do question uh, or make you question the very things that you held dear, like Sam Harris. Yeah. Like, I really struggled with his notion that uh, free will is an illusion. That thing fucking wrecked me, man. Yeah. Like, I wanted to fight that so tooth and nail. I'm like, go screw yourself. I can do what I want to do. Um, 
And for those who are not familiar, his notion, his idea of free will is that realistically it's not. Yeah. Is that realistically everything is sort of preordained and influenced by all the things that came before it. So every decision that you're making is justifiable in your mind from all the other, the culmination of experiences that you had throughout your whole life. Yeah. All lead you to the decision. It's basically predetermined whether you realize it or not. Yeah. He could... Basically, at some point, he could come up with an algorithm based upon all your life experience and without much flaw in the outcome could tell you what that decision is going to be based upon your life experience. This is the best analogy I've ever heard given for this concept. He said, imagine the entirety of your life as the ocean. And you only have so much ocean that you're capable of crossing in your life. You only have so much life. Your life, if free will would be like a dude on a jet ski in that ocean, he could potentially go anywhere at any time or even more like a dude with a teleporter on that ocean who could go anywhere at any time. That would be free will. You can do and have whatever you want at any time. What we have is more like a big ass ocean liner. Like you can make big movements, but they're going to happen slowly and also, they're going to really depend on where you start and what your environment is. Like, if you got a big ass, if you got the perfect storm kind of situation going on around you, your boat's going to just end up probably sunk. You know, so like, you don't actually have free will. You can make slow, steady changes to your experience, but they're really, it's based on where you started and what's going on around you all the time and your biology and all that stuff. Yeah. And so, like, once I thought of it that way, once I heard that analogy, because I, I struggled with that concept too, because I mean, like, it always feels like you have total free control over mm-hmm. every decision you make. Right. But you're only given access to some decisions in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a concept I've thought a whole lot about. I'm a, I'm a fan of Sam Harris, for sure. He's amazing. Uh, free plug for Sam. Yeah, he doesn't uh, need it. Yeah. Uh, hey, Sam, could you give me a plug? We're not on your Patreon, <laughs> but uh, we are rocking you, throwing <laughs> plugs. Uh <laughs> All uh, 999 listeners to Just Friends or whatever it might be at this point. I wish. <laughs> I wish, dude. That'd be cool. Hey, don't you worry. It's coming. That'd be tight, dude. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had used the analogy for years of like people for uh, when they're talking about like predetermination, they talk about fate and things of that nature, which I'm like, that's ridiculous. Uh, I don't know that there is such a thing. Uh, I'd use the analogy of a shoestring. I was like, there may be a shoestring of your life where you have a predetermined length. Okay. And this is going to be the span. But what you could do is you could move that uh, and change the ripples in that shoestring. And maybe you can control some of those Mm. ripples. But realistically, if you're pushing a shoelace in from either side, you still have that same length of life, but you only have so many outcomes of what's going to happen in those ripples. That's a good analogy too, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's just how I kind of justified it as I started playing this uh, game in my head as to what I actually believe, what is reality for me. And so I know know that a lot of people struggle with it, and we also talked about, I totally understand the benefits of religion. Mm -hmm. I do. Uh, That sense of community is very, very impactful because like we had said before, a lot of people are missing that. And I do understand that you get that that camaraderie that you need, uh, especially around a centralized idea that you can all come together on because you want that as well. But 
I think it also becomes problematic because you insulate yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be bad too. Um, and I'm not going to crap on anybody for their beliefs. I have friends who are legit some of the best people that I know that believe completely different things than I do. Uh, the majority of my friends probably aren't atheists, if I'm being realistic about yeah. it. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, and we get along, and I love those people. You know, I make sure to tell them I love them every time I see them. And, but you got to be open. Uh, and the reason that I get along with those people, and I'm close to some of those people who do believe differently than I do, is because we can sit down and talk about it. Absolutely. They don't immediately dismiss me. They're like, you godless heathen. <laughs> you know, get out of my face, you're lost soul. And I think that we are making that change. Um, and I think the dialogue is finally opening because we can do so without, you know, under the th- threat of like the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> right. You know, to where, did you say something against religion? Oh, gosh. Off with your head. And I'm having this conversation in a cave somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> by myself. Um <laughs> But like three people and two crickets are listening. <laughs> They're like, preach it, brother man. <laughs> um, so it's getting better. Um, and I'm glad because these conversations need to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it all lends itself back to the podcast. And there's tons of people out here having these same conversations. Uh, and I think it's phenomenal. But I, I mean, I, my hope is that we start to come from all aspects of life, from a more logical standpoint, rather than feeling and anecdotal data and being like, well, this is my life experience. So we should make decisions for everyone based upon my life experience because that is problematic. Yeah. Because like you said, going back to that, uh, the analogy of the ocean, the ocean's incredibly fucking large. Yeah. And realistically, it's even larger than that. We're talking about the entire galaxy of experience. And you can't possibly understand all of them. So you need to remove yourself as much as you can when we're trying to make decisions for everybody. Yeah. Uh, And that's, you know, that goes into a whole nother political conversation, but I don't want to turn anybody off, but I just think that we need to remove ourselves to be more inclusive to everybody. Oh yeah. I think that's smart. I think we need to just practice more empathy, try to love each other more and just be more compassionate with each other. So wait a second. So you just and you know that that compassion that we we're just talking about. Sam Harris talks a lot about that in in waking up. He talks about as you start to realize that you are your experiences. You realize that you experience how you treat other people, and that 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 says something about who you are. How you treat other people says something about who you are at the deepest level of what you are. And so we you have to be being mindful tells you, oh, and I also have to be compassionate. And I also have to show love because that's who if that's who you want to be, which I think that is a reasonable thing to want to be. Somebody who other people value and who other people love. And so he talks about just how being mindful lends to a more compassionate and caring individual. And I think that's so important because some people are hard to love, you know, and, and, and that is where I think a lot of those, I don't want to go political, but a lot of, a lot of ideologies that become more selfish. I hate to even use that word. Cause I totally understand 
the motivations for, for looking after oneself over looking after the, the group. I was a teacher and now I'm not. That was a selfish move. And a lot of people could describe it that way. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say it that way. I felt guilty about it. But it was what I needed to do in the moment because I was depressed. But, but the reality is kind of like you said, when it comes to making decisions about the group, you have to be only considering the group. When it comes to making decisions about yourself, make decisions about yourself. Do what you think is absolutely best for you. And in whatever people follow you, I guess, also. But when it comes to making decisions about everybody, and that's what's so hard. Because there's, in just America, there's 300 million. On the planet, there's what? Approaching eight. Eight, eight billion. billion people. <laughs> and that's another thing that's interesting from like a math perspective is that it's simultaneously a fucking humongous number and a teeny tiny little ass number for how many people that is to try to manage. It's fucking outrageous. But for like, when you think about the size of the universe, it really kind of puts it into perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just care about each other, love each other. I don't know. It's crazy. Penn Gillette uh, from Penn and Teller, he, t- he talks about a lot of these different things. Uh, and, of course, he puts himself on Team Atheist as well. Um, but he talks about things. He's like, the fact that individuals will say that the tired old phrase, the old adage, life's short. Well, no, it's not. Life is the longest thing that you will ever know. Uh, so it all comes back to perspective uh, and considering things that – and it's not being selfish, because you are the most important person most important person in your life, regardless of how you want to look at it. Because there's no one in your life that you will impact more than you do yourself with literally every decision that you make. doesn't matter if you're a parent. So we are programmed to believe that once you have those children, you no longer matter. That's all that matters. Well, no, because like you said, in your classroom, those are, I mean, you can get, correlate the two. You, I mean, you are a parent to a degree. And if you're going in there, you're depressed, you're upset, you are not setting a good precedent for your kids. So you have to take care of yourself. And it comes right back, spirals back to that mindfulness aspect. So, I mean, everything really lends itself to that notion and that idea is how can you be what you want to be if you're not taking care of yourself? And I think all of this lends itself to being open yeah and being willing to change um and i think that's a that's a problem it's something that we all we get conditioned to life you know you get stuck in these routines and i think that's i understand that we can't have a world full of fucking art majors and stuff like that you know people actually got to go out and make things and some of the people got to do some of the things that we don't necessarily want to do but at least find a hobby yeah find something that makes you happy Mm mm-hmm You know, because I think that's another thing that is creating this vicious cycle of depression and anxiety. Like, my mom, I love my mom, um, but I've never known her to have a hobby. Mm -hmm. Like, something that she did on her own that she just liked, other than watching TV. 
Yeah. You know, something that she got into. Like my dad, he was always like really into that stuff. He would go play poker and he would, he was on a dart league. He was on a pool league. He played horseshoe league. Like my dad always had some shit, some social setting that he was getting out and doing something. Um, and, it, you know, I very much followed in his footsteps. You know, I did jujitsu for years and um, I was do theater and I was in a band for years. I had all these things that didn't necessarily make me a bunch of money. Jiu-jitsu didn't I paid money to do that yeah. you know <laughs> it's you know countless money you're buying geese and you're buying you, you know you really get into something and you find all kinds of ways to spend money as I'm looking at your hobby and we stand yeah. with all this equipment that you bought which it's great it's an awesome setup yeah and it's good that you found this thing to ha- be a positive outlet and that might be something that people were overlooking maybe your therapist isn't saying hey bro get a fucking hobby yeah you know because it's so beneficial I think it, you know, because let's be realistic. A lot of us are not going to escape the jobs that we have. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just the way this life is set up, unfortunately. Um, but you deal with it. If you have that thing to look forward to, you could still be pretty happy. Yeah. Because life is not all rainbows and sunshine. Let's be realistic about it. At some point in your life, you're going to have to do something that is necessity. You know, I don't necessarily want to take some soap between the crack of my butt, <laughs> but it's necessity. Eh, you're right. Sometimes it does feel good. The water runs. To, it's warm. Yeah. It's, but we do those things that we don't necessarily want to do. You know, it's who likes burpees? What fucking weird person likes burpees? Not me, as you can see. <laughs> but we do it when we're working out. We're being, you know, smart about our thing, or about ourselves physically because we know that that's going to benefit us. Who likes the, the taste of kale shake with all <laughs> the good shit in it? Honey and berries and all the shit that's, you know, going to get rid of the kale taste. You know, but you do those things because you know it's going to be for the betterment of you. Right. You know, so. I think we do have to take into consideration the perspective of like having the chance to do that is a privilege. But it's about what you get to do, not what you have to do. Yeah. I like that. But even more than that, I think the real question comes down to if, if we want more people to do that, we need to make systems for people to be able to support each other. Mm. We need communities around us of people who lift us up and like trying to make those and, and trying to be, to make meaningful connections with people and try to build those groups is a question that I'm really contemplating right now, as you can see. Mm. And like, so how do I want to structure my life so that I have that kind of community and that kind of joy in it so that it, I feel like I'm doing something meaningful. So it's just a really interesting question because I mean, I have a friend. She's going to be on the podcast. I've already done her interview. Her name's Emily Berry. Um, so by the time people listen to this, you guys you guys know Emily. Uh, she's a coach. That's what she does for a living. And uh, she has clients who pay her money, and she just, like, tries to pour positivity into them, and then, like, they hold her accountable. Like, she can't be their coach if she's not, like, trying to live a healthy lifestyle and, like, make positive decisions. So that's what she's doing. And... Um, you know, if you watch like advertisements on like the internet and stuff like that, at least for me, I see a lot of like advertisements for like coaches. I see, uh, and I mean, like I, I'm into like David Goggins. Like I follow his stuff. <laughs> I love that crazy man. I don't do any of that craziness, but I, I like, respect I, can, it. I respect it. I can appreciate the mindset. Um, and I can appreciate how productive a person who has that mindset could become. And like, mm. that's really cool. Uh, but just having a culture of like people seeking out other people 
who can support them and who they can also invest in. Like having systems for that, I think is super valuable. Yeah, like CrossFit for the world. Yeah, and you know, like <laughs> I mean, people you, give CrossFit so much off. shit. It's such a great community. Yeah, I, I was involved with it. I got down to the lightest I'd been um, since I was a kid. I was down 178 pounds uh, just about four years ago. And my boy Joe Clark, who runs the gym there on Dixie Highway, uh, the Derby City uh, Mixed Martial Arts. I know a dude over there, too. Yeah, there's plenty of people out here in the South End that go out there. A great community. It really pushed me. You know, seeing the numbers of individuals who started at similar positions to you with their physical fitness, and they're pushing you because you're like, well, they did that. I can do that. You know, I know where we started. You know, that dude was fatter than me, that fat fuck. I'm going to beat him, you know, <laughs> even if it's friendly competition. That's not bad. That's you what know, football was for me in high school. It was that same thing. And yeah. those people are some of my best friends now. You right. Build, you, you, you suffer together. You encourage one another. You give each other shit. And you build bonds that way. Absolutely. Like, you're bashing heads. I got myself choked unconscious several <laughs> times over there doing jiu-jitsu. Uh, you know, you get put in these awful, horrible, precarious situations. But those they you build such tight bonds. You know, I have friends from the gym that I'll be friends with my whole life. Ben Fowler is one of the guys I train with over there, and he he's my family. He's my brother. I will love that guy till the day I die because we've been through war and struggle together. And you build those great bonds and it's you can find that in so many outlets you know you're talking about warhammer earlier yeah those individuals can find that niche group and i think it's so great that's one of the benefits of tribalism mm -hmm. you know where it's not this you know awful thing you can find these little niche groups and not feel so alone in this grand yeah. craziness of life as long as those groups are positive yeah because it, it can easily take you spiral out of control into a yeah. bad bad area as all things can yeah but if you if you're a part of a positive group of people that support one another and love each other you're going to benefit from that yeah I, I agree with that in a profound way and you know that all it all kind of ties back to mindfulness i know we've been talking we've been talking about it for a little while now but it's just an interesting i barely even dipped my toe in it i've meditated i, I would meditate i would say probably twice a week in the mornings when i was teaching because i had first period planning so usually if I had my shit together, and which I normally did, I would usually only have to run a couple of copies in the morning. Everything else would be ready to go. And then I could meditate for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I definitely noticed, I, I did, I meditate twice a week for probably about a month and a half. Hardly any time at all. But there was a noticeable difference. I've benefited from meditation. So I know that that it really helps. I'll tell you, I, I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before, but I got in a fight with my wife over something silly. Some, your, it was your fault, I'm sure. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> she behaved in a way that really bothered me. I can't change that it bothered me. But when I think about it, I realize that it stems from insecurity that I have that have nothing to do with her. Um, and I got mad at her for something that she said unfairly. And oh my gosh, I wanted to fight because that, that's kind of like my go-to response is I wanted to yell, but I've, I've really, really learned not to do that. So what I do instead is I get real quiet. And actually she went to the barn and rode her horse, which was really nice. And I'd been nice to her. I was upset a little bit, but she went and rode her horse. I meditated for like 20 minutes. And by the time she got home, all I really wanted to do 
was apologize to her for being an asshole. I wanted to explain to her how her behavior had hurt my feelings so that she knew, hey, if, if you behave like this again, I'm going to really try to be conscious of it, but it could hurt my feelings because that's fair because I have to be honest with her. But also I have to realize like that that hurts my feelings because I'm insecure. And she married me. So I shouldn't be insecure about that. And I only really had that revelation because I sat down and I focused on my breath for like 20 minutes. And the first 10 minutes of it probably, I was just bouncing back and forth between trying to stay focused and thinking about my anger with my wife. And only for about three minutes, really, I'd say it was one of my most successful meditations ever. I think I stayed focused really intently on my breathing for about maybe a minute and a half to two minutes, maybe upwards of three. I don't know. It wasn't very long. And then I got distracted again, of course. But I calmed down in those moments enough to realize like, oh yeah, like this bothers me because of this. That has everything to do with me. It has nothing to do with my wife. In this moment, she was behaving based off of a ton of other external factors. She wasn't thinking necessarily at all about hurting my feelings at all. And I just needed to let that go. And that came to me through a 20-minute meditation session. And I, I just, the, the value that came from that and being able to invest that back into my relationship, which is one of like the most valuable things in my life, if other people don't know about that, that that's available, just like focus and clarity and intention, it's because you, you're distracted by your phone, which I am too. <laughs> so am I. Amongst other things. Yeah. And I think that we might have this antiquated view <clears throat> of what mine, or what meditation looks like. You know, it's like, I need to sit with my legs crossed on a pillow in a room in solidarity. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that. No. It's never been that for me. But I know if I, if I go on a ride, I hop on my bike, I ride, especially when I ride somewhere really serene where I can feel connected uh, maybe to nature or whatever, as cheesy or woo as that sounds. And I can lose myself. And I can do some real deep thinking. You know, oftentimes I would just hit pause on the podcast, on the music, and just think. I would go for a run. I used to do that when I was really in shape. And I think it was one of the reasons I felt better as, as a whole. Because I would, I would go to, to warm up every day before I would do my stretches. I would go out. I would get my, my uh, laps around the building. In Derby City, I would run around the building, and as I was running, I would I would be thinking. I would clear my mind of the thing that I was doing that day, you know, whatever it was. I would just decompress, and then by the time I got into stretch, I was already so much more relaxed than I was before I even got mm -hmm. there. And that might look like in meditation for you might be the drive to work. Turn the radio off. Put yourself in your thoughts. You know, of course, you have to focus a little bit on what you're doing, driving, obviously. But you can get some time in. Be reflective. It's it's tough. I, we are instant gratification culture. I've said it earlier in the podcast. But that's what's happening. It's not just the phones in general, but it's the things that become easily accessible for our phones where we constantly have to be entertained. If I'm waiting in line two minutes at the grocery store, I get my phone out. I don't give myself any time for personal thought, personal reflection. Mm -hmm. And give yourself some of that. Cut the grass. Just let the motor of the mower hum in your brain and think about 
whatever you need to think about while you're doing it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be you sitting in silence. You can reflect on yourself anytime. Yeah. Realistically, so long as you're not engaged in a conversation or something like that. And it coming back again, that's one of the hard things about being a teacher. You have a situation like what you did with your wife and the way that you were able to come from it from a rational uh, perspective is reflection. Yeah. We don't get that as a teacher. You have this awful situation with a student in your class and you getting to a shouting match with him across the classroom or him or her and you got to go right back to teaching. Yeah. It's really difficult. Mm-hmm. That Jekyll and Hyde of that when we are human beings and it's hard and you don't get to apologize to your class until the next day. Yeah, you, know, no. you come back and you're overreacted and you That's got a hard upset. apology too. Yes. And I always try to give that apology if, you know, I look like a jerk. Um, and what you said about your wife, I found myself doing that as well. Like I've had to be very reflective and um, introspective in the things and the things that I say to my wife because of the insecurities or the other baggage in my life that has occurred. And I try to be as honest about those things as I can. And that all comes back to being aware in the moment that that's what needs to be done. And maybe that comes from reflection. It definitely comes from reflection. I think reflection is a big part of meditation because before you can clear your mind of thoughts, you need to potentially focus on all the thoughts that are so important that you don't have time to clear your minds of thoughts before you think about them. Get get your stuff scared, squared away. Like you said, cut your grass. Make sure you make your bed, as Jordan Peterson would say. Clean your room. And I'm not great at that, but I try. I try. I, I got up earlier this morning so I could straighten up the house before you got here. I didn't get. I didn't finish getting. I didn't. Finish Can't getting. tell. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, and also I'm just trying to be respectful to you, but I'm just just trying to be thoughtful, trying to be more aware of the moment, because the real thing I feel like I'm seeking when I meditate is the few moments where, and maybe just a few, like I said, maybe a couple of minutes tops where all I'm doing is focusing on my breath. That's what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Focusing on my breath. And I maintain that for a while. And the cool thing that I'll say that I've benefited from over the course of doing it pretty regularly for a little while is I'd still get distracted every like 10 or 15, maybe even 30 seconds. But I would realize I was distracted way sooner Mm-hmm. than I would before where I'd before I, I'd be meditating and then I'd get distracted from my breath and I'd be thinking thoughts for maybe like two or three, four, five, ten minutes before I realized, fuck, I'm thinking about shit and I'm not supposed to be thinking about shit, letting myself get distracted. And I mean, like I probably couldn't even do it for a half a minute now because it's been probably a month since I've meditated. But I don't know. The whole practice is super interesting and I guess what I'm saying is if you're a person who's listening to this and you're not investigating like mindfulness and meditation and the impacts that can have to benefit your life in small ways to help you be more disciplined, you should check it out because I am slowly but surely benefiting from it and it's cool. What's well, hilarious that you bring that up because if you hear corners uh, in MMA fights, boxing, uh, wrestling, Things like that, you'll hear the coaches say from the sideline, breathe, breathe. Yeah. Because even in those situations, you forget the most basic thing. 
And when you see people training, they do the exaggerated punches and things of that nature, and they're because you're doing that to condition yourself to remember the most basic thing, to not hold your breath, because it's easy to do that when somebody's trying to punch you in the face. You see a fist coming at you, and you hold your breath, you squint. You have to condition yourself to get out of that situation. Uh, or you'll hold your breath when you're pushing someone off of you as they go into mount or uh, something of that nature when you're doing jiu-jitsu. They go to side control, and you know that that is their strongest fucking place to be. Mm-hmm. And you're like, God damn it. Shouldn't have done that. And you're holding your breath. You're exasperated. Uh, and you need that breath because you're engaged in strenuous physical activity. Yes. And you don't want to get gassed. So as you do it, that's probably one of the most beneficial things as a white belt that I learned that just breathe. Relax. Calm down. You've been here before, and you're going to get through it. And you breathe, and you slow your breathing down. You get your thoughts together, and you are present. And you figure out a way to get through that. And as you get better at that, you get better at the game. And I think that's with a lot of different things. You know, basketball players that are really good, they don't freak out. They don't panic. They're in the moment. They're like, all right, I've done this a million times. Give me the ball. I know how to make the move to the basket. Uh, Anything. You know, any top athlete, any top performer at anything. An actor. You know, an actor, I've done these lines a thousand times. Let me get through this. I'm going to be present. I mean, that's that's one of the things I really feel like people could really benefit from is is theater and participation in that because you really have to be in the moment. Yeah, you're playing off of all these different variables around you. Yeah, like every – you don't just blurt out your lines. The people who are the best at it, uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks uh, were talking about um, – God, what's the movie they just did recently together? Uh, Jesus, I can't think of the movie. Uh, but they were being interviewed and they were like, what's so great about working with, you know, you guys are probably two of the best in the game. And Tom Hanks had said about Meryl Streep was that she didn't just regurgitate her lines. It's not about knowing your lines because any asshole can memorize a few lines and spout them out. It's about reacting to the little mannerisms that you have in that scene. So they're playing it this particular way because there's a sense of anxiety in the scene or there's a sense of fear in the scene, whatever it might be. You're using those little bits to react in kind, not just spout out lines on a page. There's no life to that. Mm -hmm. You have to react in such a way that's authentic. And that's what takes the good actors to the great actors because you're using all those little things and you're, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. You're coming tit for tat. You're going right with what they're doing. And that's great mindfulness that you that you could really participate in. And you don't have to be an actor. I mean, you could be involved in whatever activity it is. You know, we've listed a thousand. Yeah. You know, so, well, not realistically a thousand, but you know. I bet you could Google a list of a thousand. Probably could. Have you seen, you seen my little thing? Hey, Google. Say Hi. See, now I don't know if that gets picked up by the microphone or not. I might have to move it over here. We'll figure it out. But <laughs> she said hi. She's there. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's really... I, you can definitely get a meditation out of a lot of things. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Um, I'm just... I'm not particularly athletic. I enjoy physical activity, though. Uh, it's natural. Yeah. I mean, it's part of... 
it's ingrained in us. It's, it's how we got this far. You know, you said something earlier that I thought was interesting that kind of ties into this. You're talking about like how cheesy it is to say that like you felt connected to nature, but doesn't it make perfect sense for humans to feel like we're connected to nature? We've only been living out of nature for like what? Barely a few thousand years. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in early agricultural human civilization, <clears throat> you're still pretty connected to nature. Hmm. Like you, right out on the edges of your farm were jaguars. <laughs> like yeah. they, they were probably going to eat your llamas. I don't know. I'm, it's just, it means craziness. And so I definitely believe that there's this sense of belonging that is created when you're in nature. I experience it a lot of times when I get to go hiking with my wife and stuff like that, that's another thing that really seems to be true about like being happy is you got to get out and get into nature. Um, I think it's because we evolved there. We spent most of our time there. Do you, do you like to hike or do you do stuff like that? Yeah, I love to hike. Uh, it's probably my wife's favorite pastime. Uh, we have two dogs. We love taking the dogs with us. They really enjoy it. Of course. Um, but yeah, man, there, there's a certain peace and serenity that exists when you're hiking and in the middle of the thing that makes this all possible. So there's, there's a connection to that because I think that you understand the balance without the trees and without all those living organisms there that we don't get to have this. I don't even get to have this thought without that tree. Yeah. You know, so it's this beautiful cycle and circle of life that you get connected to not to, you know, go down too far to the woo train, but I mean, it's true. No, that was beautiful. I actually never really had thought about it like that. That like without all of this that's going on right now, like I wouldn't be able to exist. That's an interesting thought. I just know that I've gotten to go on a few small, but good hikes with my wife. And there's a good feeling. You get a feeling of accomplishment also at the end of it when you because you did something kind of hard. Um, but also just being in the woods or just being out in nature and just surrounded by this just like majesty and grandeur that just is there. Just because of the natural going on of things, this fucking beautiful, amazing thing just exists. And that's so cool and, and feeling connected to that and... You know, I don't get to have those experiences often, but I'll take my dog walking or running at like Waverly Park because mm-hmm. that's over here by me, yep. and that's pretty fun. And uh, like I was talking about Bernheim, I love Bernheim Forest. Uh, I know that it was like at risk of having like a power line go through it or something like that, mm-hmm. and they were able to stop that from happening. Thank goodness. I think it was. I think it's cool. I mean, some people would complain because it probably could progress industry in some capacity. I'm sure. But I love that place. I don't want it to be changed. Right. Well, going back off of what you said, like, I think the power of nature. Um, I had a moment. We were traveling. We went to Vegas. And we were only just a couple short hours away from the west portion of the Grand Canyon. So I'd never been. I didn't know if I would get to go back out there. So I try to, you know, experience whatever I can when I'm in an area. So we took the drive out, and you're on a tram. So on the western portion of it, it's owned by the uh, one of the Native American tribes out there. That's so cool. So you have to pay to get on it on the property 
which was fine. Yeah, and that makes sense. Yeah, I'm like, that's fine. That's the least I can do uh, yeah. for all the things that have happened. Absolutely. Um, so we did that, and we're on the tram, and everybody's chattering. You know, there's people from all over the place. I mean, you're just a couple short hours from Vegas, so I'm sure that a lot of people had the same idea as us from all walks of life. Vegas is all the people from everywhere. And so we're all having our little individual conversations, the light murmuring on the, the tram, and you take a corner to your first actual site of the canyon. Yeah. So you turn this corner, and literally the conversation for the entire tram stifled immediately. Wow. So everybody's... Blah, 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 blah. It's so absolutely awe-inspiring. That's amazing. And it was just such a cool moment because you you could feel it. You could hear it. And everybody just is looking all around them as you open into this great expanse where you go out to the observation deck where they had this observation deck that drops, I think it's 10,000 feet. You can go out to this glass thing and it comes down. And then, of course, there's the whole open expanse that you can walk out and see. And it was just absolutely incredible to be able in a group to experience that. And just to everybody felt it at the same time because we all just stopped. And to me... <sighs> I say this to the wife all the time. She probably gets sick of fucking hearing it, but I'll still say it. I don't care. Any time we go somewhere like that, we've been out to Seattle. We talked about this earlier. Uh, we went out to a place called the Devil's Pass. Uh, the Devil's Pass is this huge bridge that comes over this uh, stretch of water. Absolutely gorgeous with the Puget Sound. I've been to the Gulf uh, of Florida, the Gulf side. I've been to a lot of beautiful places. I mean, Kentucky's very beautiful. And it's I love right. it. It's beautiful. You're right, yeah. And every time we go out somewhere, and I'm just absolutely overwhelmed by the beauty of wherever we are, I will look at my wife and I'll say, why isn't this enough? Because to me, that is my God. That is my afterlife. That is my grand experience. And I feel so overwhelmed. And I, I, it's the, the insane grandeur that this crazy happenstance of whatever happened who cares you're there you're in that moment and i just think to myself why isn't this enough why do do i even care about the explanation maybe but is it really that important that's an interesting question man we could probably talk for four more hours about that question yeah um I don't know. I don't even know where to begin. So maybe that's a good place to end. Yeah, we'll leave it with that open-ended. We'll turn this into a, a Wes Anderson movie. Man, thank you so much for coming over here and doing this. Absolutely. I was super pumped to, as soon as you were doing the podcast, I started talking to you about it. I was like, let's get together, man. This is fun. Actually, we need it. to do this again. Because we kept it pretty We kept it pretty straight. <laughs> yeah. And we could have gotten way more uh, humorous, I think, than we chose to get. It did go pretty serious from two yeah. people that I feel like are <laughs> kind of goobers about different <laughs> shit. Yeah, we're both goofy dudes, man. But. You know, but one-on-one, it gets so intimate. It does. It gets so intimate. And so, like, that's one thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to expand. I've done one group episode, and let me tell you, that's exactly where it went. Would you be down for Get Tipped and Back? Oh. Get Zemanski? Oh, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That'd do, you, be... do you like, do you know Tipton and Zemanski pretty well? Yeah. I go down there. I'm like one of the outliers of the freshman academy. I ventured down into the, the business, the finance. Evil business finance. Yeah. 
I love those guys. There's some cool people over there. Yeah. Brother, I really appreciate you doing this, dude. Absolutely. So I'll be back in touch. We'll do a group. I think with the maybe the next time we uh, do this a little later in the day and I have a little bourbon. That sounds cool. That would be That's a good idea. Money. I'll bring you some good bourbon. We can get down the rabbit hole. I love it. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely, brother. All right, brother. Well, I'll talk to you later. Thank you for doing this. I love you. Love you too, brother. This is great. Later. Later. All right, guys, there it is. That's the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the new format. I'll say it's made things easier only having to record one intro and one outro, especially since I stopped doing ads. Although I'd love to bring those back if there's anybody out there that would be interested in purchasing some ad time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. I told you we got real deep on it, but I hope you guys appreciated it. And I look forward to hearing your feedback on all the episodes. If you do appreciate what you're hearing, and you want to show your support, check out the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts. You can become a patron and support the show. We had our first experiment with a video podcast. That first 17 minutes of the group podcast, that's going to be available on Patreon soon. So look out for that, those patrons out there. You guys are making this happen. You guys are going to be the reason why the next round of videos comes out even better than this. Because I'm going to be honest, this one didn't turn out great. You can also show your support by sharing the Facebook page and Instagram page or just sharing your favorite episodes to people who you think might appreciate them. You can leave comments on Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. You can like us on Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. It's little things, but they really add up. And also feel free to comment on the Facebook page. Leave me feedback. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. I'm open to try to make changes if they make sense. I want this to be awesome for all of us. Guys, I got one more episode in the tank. It's an exciting little twist that I think everybody's going to enjoy. And then I've got plans in the works for trying to figure out how to do some remote podcasts. I think I've got a plan. It's going to take some coordination, but my potential guests are pretty tech savvy, so we'll make this happen. I want to keep this going for you guys for as long as I can. I love you all. I hope you have a fantastic week. hope you're taking care of yourselves. Bye. Bye.